In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. We have a packed pub again this week because of the inauguration, which mercifully went ahead without craziness yesterday. We have decided to debate America's worst ever president. Is it 45? No mentions of 45 are allowed at all. Banned from the conversation because we've just had four years of that much crazy. And there's plenty more to choose from in American history. Uh, And so for that reason... All the British people in the room, or mostly British people in the room, are going to be trying to convince Americans as to who their worst ever president was. So, as ever, will you be upstanding for the totally dishonourable Andrew Holmes, who will be judging? Evening. How are you doing? Not too bad. I don't, I don't know if I'm in the right frame of mind for that. I seem to be the only person in the entire world that didn't watch the inauguration because I was busy. And I know nothing about American presidents apart from, like, Reagan, Clinton... The last one who we can't name, Obama. Possibly a bit of Jimmy Carter, but after that, the mind's blank. All right, Wikipedia is your friend tonight, don't worry. We also have, you please be upstanding for the uh, Judge John Jordan in Atlanta. John, are you ready for this? You know, bring it on. I'm ready to take every hit and uh, defend uh, my, my country's elected presidents to the bitter end. We may see a bitter end here. (laughs) Yeah, we may see a bitter end. And uh, I think you're probably being just a little bit sarcastic there. And we also have a guest judge from Arizona with us. Uh, She's one of the most awesome people I know. Wendy's with us. You're right, Wendy. I'm just fine. It's my country right or wrong, though. Get it? Get it straight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And if anyone is wondering how I know Wendy, we met on a desert island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And I basically carried her round a hike that was supposed to be a stroll, but wasn't. It was a fucking hike and she refused to walk. So I basically carried her and she rewarded me when we got into the sea afterwards by vomiting on me. <laughs> That's how I know Wendy. And none this of is you how friendships that. are solidified. And suddenly you are the most popular person in the room without even yeah. trying. <laughs> Okay, we also have with us, who not normally with us, Karen Uslin, who has been on History Hat before, talking to Alina about all things music in concentration camps. Right, Karen? Yes, I'm good. It's good to be here. I'm excited about this. This is good because you have picked yours and you picked Alina's because Alina doesn't do prep. (laughs) She made you do her prep. A little. A little. (laughs) Which is yes, isn't it? Um, But I know that Karen has seen the list and is slightly dismayed by some of the names on it. So uh, this should be fun. We also have Clive with us. You're right, Clive? I'm very well, thank you, Alex. Um, Everyone wants to know if you're going to do Masterpiece Theatre again and whether your presidents will have Cockney accents. Well, I have found a number of quotations from my president and I've been trying to work out what the, the appropriate accent for Americans was at that time. There aren't any recordings, so I'm going to have to do my very best. I suspect that they were Cockney, though. OK, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Kit has finally got a uh, living accommodation with a kitchen in it. You're right, Kit. I'm all right. How are you? Not bad. Uh, although you may get blown into the uh, Atlantic at some point. 
Yeah, it's a bit blustery, Southampton. It turns out that sort of all those sea shanties that people have been seeing this first couple of weeks of 2012-21 have summoned up a storm. Um, it's almost like Jack Parsons whipping his cock out again. I like the fact as well that the proper science expert on here thinks storms are caused by people singing. <laughs> <laughs> I like to mix science and religion, and I'm, I'm, I'm a philosopher as well, apparently. Um, I finally got my, my bollocks doctorate uh, title, which is, is it's, sorry, sorry, I should say, no, it's proper doctorate title, and it is in the history and philosophy of science. So, there you go. You are now officially Dr. Kit. I am now officially Dr. Kit. Even if I thanked uh, Mothman, the uh, the West Virginia Mothman, in my dissertation, um, and no one noticed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you read the front of Holmes and I uh, our Chelsea book, you will see me thanking all the other members of staff from Immigration Enforcement who did all the work while I wrote the book while the government was paying me. And I'm not even sorry because Immigration Enforcement sucked. James is with us from the land of Brum. You're right, James. Yeah, just waiting on the uh, test result now and locked away but then again i am in birmingham so probably being locked away is uh, better than being out in birmingham so <laughs> yeah, at least you're learning uh, and also as well i have to say that this is the third time you i think someone's punking you james because you seem to have been told four or five times now you've got to shut yourself up for two weeks and it's like someone's going <laughs> convinced him again but oh well i've got all i need here so um yeah mcdonald's deliver so all is right with the world <laughs> Charlie's with us in Bedford. You're right, Charlie. Yeah, I'm good. I had a great day yesterday, skiving off and watching the inauguration. And uh, Lady Gaga absolutely smashed the national anthem, guys. I mean, what a queen! Yeah, I have to say that Wendy and uh, Karen probably don't know that Charlie didn't sleep for six days last November because she was so hooked on. Fox News. Like you watch <laughs> We don't get Fox News here. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I know it, it's not one, it was one of their crazy ass news channels, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, the, the rolling news channels. I, I knew every part of your map, like the back of my hand. I don't even know where Birmingham is, but I knew where everything <laughs> was. I knew all their names. They were like my best friends. I wasn't sleeping. I had to check my phone like the minute I woke up. And then, ironically, uh, you went and peed just as like. Georgia declared or something really important that was yeah it was when he um, when he took Michigan I was on the loo I was very <laughs> I was very happy but <laughs> brilliant we've got Beth with us uh I'm finding Beth's choice hilarious we'll get to that very very soon you're right Beth yeah I'm okay are you yeah not, not bad. Right. still working away though so some of us are allowed out and about up here in the Midlands so <laughs> <laughs> not all deceased. Beth you don't want me out and about right now <laughs> Stay in, stay in we will send you McDonald's if you promise to stay in the house. Uh, Lockie is with us in South East oh. London. You're right, Lockie. Yeah, I'm good. I had a bit of a sobering email from the Army Benevolent Fund uh, yesterday saying, yes, we have approved you to run the London Marathon for us uh, this year. So um, uh, it's actually much, much yeah, worse. That's than... been like 12 weeks. It's in October. Oh, have they moved it this year? Um, yeah, but uh, as a result of drunkenness and stupidity and allowing myself to be cajoled by Taft Gillingham and Rob Thompson. I've agreed to do it in First World Why War Soldiers. Why would you let kids. them two cajole you? Hell <sighs> will freeze over before any of t- those two buggers even runs to the end of the road, let alone a marathon. How did well, you let it, that happen? If it was just Thompson, then I wouldn't give a shit. But but Taft, I kind of hang on his every word. So um, <laughs> I was like, oh, right, okay, he's going to kick me up. 
happy days. So now I'm doing the... <laughs> the like the Compton would marathon. only run if there was beer at the other end and Taff would just tell you to fuck off. <laughs> well, yeah, well, they're not running with me, of course. No, he's just offered to kit me out in really abrasive wool gear and 40 pounds of kit. Yeah, not the what, what you need to do is fake a war diary thing from like October 18 and find this battalion that were actually kitted out in experimental lycra and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, well, well a, given that you're a like... a depot battalion that did, didn't do anything for a few months. So. You're nearly seven foot tall, so if it's an authentic TAF uniform, <laughs> it's going to be to like your knees, which is going to be quite funny. Well, we'll see. Just saying can't, you find a, can't you find a bicycle brigade or something? That's a great idea. I think they, the, the, the London Marathon people themselves frown on that. I, I think they frown <laughs> on Lee Enfield rifles being carried around as well, but we'll, we'll see what, what, what we can do there. Oh, we are definitely going to get the Great War Group members to be sponsoring you um, and laughing at you every step of the way. Um, yeah, that's, that's a training diary on Twitter yeah. so we can all sit there and uh, drink gin and laugh at you. Oh, I'll be drinking as well. This is not going to be a sober endeavour, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> we have Chris with us as well. Chris? You're right. I, yeah, not bad. You're right. Are you hiding in the cupboard from your children, or are you uh, all right today? I'm I'm all right today. I've literally just bombed it in through the front door from work. Um, there's been a landslide, so they've, they've cut all the trains. I think it was probably market detonating a landslide to try and cut midway <laughs> off from the rest of the country. Yeah, he did it at the wrong end. <laughs> uh, Princess coast, will but... be with us shortly. Uh, he's adult in at the moment. We've also got Dorman with us live from Dublin. Yeah, we do. I'm a ray of sunshine today. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, over this shit. <laughs> are you supposed to be like one of these jolly Irish people? Can you not do some fiddle dee dee bewitch dancing for us and make us feel better? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just won't. <laughs> Wendy now has a dog on her head, which is cool. It's uh, <laughs> pretty usual. Yep. <laughs> Hello, Oliver. Yeah, he's not, he's not bothered. Zach's with us as well, live from the South Coast as well. Zach. How's it going? Um, I'm all right. Apparently, we're all about to become the epicenter of the pestilence. Um, but apart from that, everything's good. Why is that? Because there are so many old people down there. I think so. So um, we have something like double the national rate when it comes to COVID. And like you say, everybody down here is old. So it uh, doesn't look brilliant. But um, yeah. Apart from that, everything's wonderful down here. <laughs> so basically what we're all saying is everything is shit and we'd like it to end now, please, yeah? Sounds, sounds about right. Arizona oh. has had the highest rate in the world multiple times. Thought yeah. you should know. Arizona is the COVID capital of the planet, isn't it? It is. Full of old people, including me. <laughs> Joining us in his own sweet-ass time is Princess. Without his tiara. You all right? Hello. There we go. <laughs> It does sit by the laptop ready to go just for you lovely people. Brilliant. Right. We're going to do them in order um, just because that's one way of doing it. Uh, And it means that you absolutely have to keep to your five minute limit because Zach is last. And we know that Zach turns into a pumpkin at half past ten and you all need to have stopped talking. So five minutes or you get cut off um, and Beth has decided uh, in the last few days, no more nice Beth. She's decided she's sick of being the one that everybody's nice to. Uh, everybody thinks is lovely and nice and uh, Tinkerbell-like. 
uh, and so has picked um, this choice. But what Beth has failed to realise is Beth also has a fundamental need to be liked by everyone, which means that when I tell you she has picked the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, as the worst president your country has ever had, that she may have fucked herself over here. Beth, take it away. Right, yeah. So as I looked into the yeah, I picked Thomas Jefferson. Um, obviously, as we know, third president of the newly formed United States of America at that time from 1801 to 1809. is um, one of the, obviously, the founding fathers and as the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, he has been considered as one of the greatest Americans. And it can't be argued the effect that he's had on the America of today. But I'm arguing that today that the bad in his life has far outweighed any good that he may have done. First of all, first and foremost, I'm going to talk about personal aspects of his life. So first off, really, really well-known fact, he was a slave owner. When he was 11 years old, his father died, leaving him an estate. Ten years later, he formally inherited 52 black human beings and 5,000 acres of land, as well as livestock and other particular valuables. When he authored the Declaration of Independence, he held 175 black men, women and children as slaves. And it's believed that in total throughout his lifetime, he owned at least 600 slaves, more than any other president. Which, of course, regardless of the fact that it's slavery, he, he just he owned human beings, which you should never be able to do. He was a hypocrite in that fact as well. The, obviously, one of his most famous quotes being, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And I just, every time I read that, I just want to burst into Hamilton and all the dances and stuff. Um, but he talked about how men are created equal, that we are all the same, but continues to hold um, slaves as his property, which is just a complete contradiction of terms. He wanted to he did in some respects he 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 had ugh, hang on trying to get my words out can't get them out today. Blah, blah, blah. um he did propose certain um plans to end slavery so in 1824 he did propose a national plan um to end slavery by the federal government by purchasing african-american slave children raising them and then training them in occupations that would give them employment but then sending them away to the country of Santo Domingo, which is now the Dominican Republic. So they can be free, but somewhere else. Um, he was obviously a blatant racist. He wrote in uh, various letters that black people stink in that they have a very strong and disagreeable odour, that there exists an innate incompetence of blacks and that they are inferior to the white in endowment of both body and mind. There's also the point as well about Sally Hemings and the uh, idea of whether or not any of her children are in his. Um, she was a slave. She also happened to be the half-sister of Jefferson's wife, Martha. So not only is he having a bit of side fun with his half-sister-in-law, she is a child when this starts. She's 14 years old and he's 44. So not only is it his wife's stepsister she's also a child and he is a fully grown man which i think we can all disagree is very disgusting and now people argue well are any of her children actually his um 
well, they've done, there's been some DNA testing done and it's more than likely that yes, he is the father of at least six of them. So, you know, I, I don't think there are any, it can't be argued. He is a properly disgusting person. Um, he's just so hypocritical in everything he does. He, when he was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1769, he attempted to introduce laws uh, which were conce- considered extreme even at the time that would essentially have banned free black people from entering or exiting the Commonwealth and would have banished children whose fathers were of African origin. He then also would try to expel women who had children by black men. Talk about pot calling the kettle black. He's obviously an out-and-out liar and just a cheat as well. His friend from the American Revolution, and pardon me, Alina, for butchering this, um, Polish nobleman Tadeusz Kostuko uh, came to America in 1798 to receive the back pay for his service during the American Revolution. He then wrote a will directing Jefferson to use all of the money and land in the US to free and educate slaves, which Jefferson agreed to do so. And then when his friend Kazuko died, didn't do it, just left, didn't respond to any of the wishes in the will. And that's all just stuff he did in his, his personal life. That's not even really touching what he did in the presidency. First off, the Louisiana Purchase, you know, the, move, the mass movement of Native Americans into land that wasn't theirs, having their land forcefully taken off them and the, um, the Trail of Tears happening at this time, potentially around 100,000 people. He did this, he wanted, for him, it was about the security of the new United States. Um, So he wanted to assure that the native nations were tightly bound to the United States and not other foreign nations. But secondly, he wanted to civilize them as well by adopting an agricultural rather than a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. So tried to inflict a particular way of life on them. Um, Some of his writings did initially seem to promote that he wanted the Native Americans to become assimilated or civilized. And then others of his writings suggest that he's quite actually ambivalent about the assimilation, even going so far as to use the words exterminate and extirpate regarding tribes that resisted American expansion and were willing to to fight to defend their lands. Not on top of that as well, he also, during his second term as president, um, brought in the Embargo Act um, as a result of the war between France and England, the Napoleonic Wars. Each war, each country had become desperate for financial support and trade with America. So both France and Britain had made efforts to block the other's trade by capturing American ships and seizing their goods. So Jefferson was um, forced in, 19, in 1807 by the Chesapeake Affair, um, in which the British warship Le- Leopard had attacked the American frigate Chesapeake. So he introduced the Embargo Act um, on all trade overseas, not just British tra- trade, all of it. So it had disastrous consequences for America. Um, exports plummeted from 108 million to 22 million in the space of two years, and an economic depression ravaged the country meaning that many people turned to smuggling um, and carrying out illicit trade on their own personal boats. Um, And he sent federal agents to track down smugglers and violators and kept passing acts in Congress to try and stop this from happening. It's been considered as well that Jefferson's embargo was so ineffective and harmful to the American interests and economy. 
It's been described as well as his least effective policy whilst he was in his administration. So, and that's just a small sample of what Jefferson was like. I personally don't see how there can be a worse president as the effect of his actions or inaction, if you prefer, around slavery, the Louisiana Purchase, etc., are still having an inherent effect on American society today. And he's just an all-round bastard. <laughs> uh, don't hold back, Beth. Tell us what you really think. Or President Beth, as she's uh, renamed herself on the chat. Uh, I've yeah. done it too. We'll all be presidents tonight. Uh, so yeah this thing about everyone liking you I think you've now got some work to do <laughs> possibly don't apply for an Esther anytime soon to get into the United States <laughs> just saying uh, one thing that Wendy you mentioned to me before we started tonight was that inevitably we were going to get to the point that there is a difference between a bad person and a bad president didn't right. we we did do we think um, he's potentially just a not very nice man? Oh, no, I, I think Beth is absolutely correct. He's both um, an unbelievable hypocrite, um, a, a president who looked good but was not good, uh, made tremendous errors. OK, we were always taught growing up that the Louisiana Purchase was like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, but there there was a lot going on that was not so great that we didn't talk about at the time. You know, one of my favorite lines from Hamilton was Thomas Jefferson always hesitant with the president, reticent. There isn't a plan he doesn't jettison. Yeah. Uh, I actually tried to use that, uh, a variation of that in a book when talking about Margaret Thatcher, and it just sort of unraveled when I tried. <laughs> um, you know, one thing to consider about presidents, it seems, is that under the constitutional system that we've got, a president has actually less direct power than a prime minister because they don't control the legislature and uh, have to, sometimes can be at the mercy of a hostile Congress. But I think Jefferson's party was in control for about 30 years of, uh, of the Congress. So, uh, you know, the, the problems like the Embargo Act, that it does seem like uh, they could be fairly laid at Jefferson's door at, as leader of the party. Holmes, where did you stand on this one? Yeah, I'm not. I wasn't that sure who he was at one point. I was thinking, when's she going to get to the bit about inventing the light bulb? But I think I got mixed up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've not got that much to judge them on. As I said, my knowledge is slightly limited, so I'm, you know, I'm going to be judging everyone on whether they spunked on an intern's arm or something by the end of the night, That's <laughs> a good or a bad thing. I mean, the, the slavery thing is awful. I don't even. I knew it was prevalent at the time and in other countries. I don't think they should get a free pass on that basis because, you know, because they were only making black people slaves, they obviously knew there was something wrong with it, but we don't need to go into that in too much detail. I mean, obviously, because the Vikings, when they had slaves, they took their own as well, as well as prisons of war and stuff. So they obviously knew slavery was a bad thing. And it's a pity it took that long to, um, for them to sort it out. And I'm not sure if he's going to be the only person we're here tonight that's connected with slavery. Um, how was he perceived at the time? Was he popular, though, Beth, amongst fellow Americans at the time? Um, Imre, you're probably better asking John about that. Let's mm. ask Karen. Karen, was this one of the ones that made you, like, shit your pants when you saw him on the list? No, no, this was not one of the ones. You know, I, I think with a lot of the founding fathers, we're at a point now where we can say, you know, there were a lot of bad aspects to them as human beings. Some of them as presidents politically were better than 
others. Uh, and there's, you know, as far as policy goes, there's a lot that you can argue to is to be desired with Thomas Jefferson, the president in the political office. So no, this was this was not one of the ones where I went where my head exploded. Those are more in the 20th century than the head exploded. <laughs> right. Uh, but Beth, I do have to say that Kit has called you on hypocrisy because he says, how old are your Disney princesses supposed to be? The Little Mermaid, 16. Yeah. I'm not saying it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Disney princesses. Snow White is 14 in the movie. And she's yeah. living in a house with seven blokes. Slut. Yeah. Slot bag. Right, okay, let's move on. We're not moving very far forward in American history. We are, in fact, shooting just forward to the fourth president of the United States because James? Yeah. No. Chris has picked James Madison. Is this because you still have some deep-rooted beef about independence? Um, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I was tempted to do the arch villain and traitor George Washington. However, I've gone for another tack. Um, I'm also going to have to say that I'm sorry, Beth, I'm still going to like you because you've actually set me up quite well because a lot of the themes uh, that you've started with continue into Madison's period. You're welcome. Um, usually, when you, thank you. Uh, usually when you have a president that has um, policies um, that you disagree with, you tend to have a, a swing away from them with the next president. However, Madison uh, continued. And obviously, um, but first of all, I'm, I'm going to come in, into my preamble. Uh, I considered that um, to be elected president, one must be a leader, someone who inspires the voters. And in wartime, the military, um, pe- as people will be uh, laying down their lives at your order and must be willing to do this. Uh, Madison not only failed to do it, to gain this loyalty, um, he completely mishandled the entire War of 1812 against um, one of the greatest armies in the world at the time. Um, during the Napoleonic War, we had unrestricted naval warfare, which is something I'm always excited about, uh, which is carried out by uh, the French and the British against all kinds of US tr- shipping and trade. As Beth said, that had certain ramifications. However, Napoleon suggested to Madison that if the French were to stop doing this, he could, um, he could um, quibble only with the British. And Madison agreed with the arch-villain Napoleon, which I know that Zach and Marcus will probably back me up on. Um, and then Madison had this great idea that while um, because the British continued just to ignore him, and so did the French, by the way, they betrayed him, uh, and the British thought, well, we'll keep doing what we're doing. Madison decided, um, with popular backing, that they would try and have a second war of independence and liberate Canada either so that it could join the states or the colonies, as I prefer to call them, or they could use it as a bargaining chip against the British later. So he ramps up the anti-English feeling and um, finally declares war. There's only one major problem. Uh, Jefferson and Madison had spent a lot of time cutting the military budget. So most of the uh, American army consisted of militia. Uh, who were often very poorly trained, bearing in mind that the British could uh, fire four rounds a minute, maybe up to five of the South Essex. Um, and um, the militia are holding to the governors and states. And a lot of the state governors were not willing to send their militias, like from Alabama, or not Alabama, but from like the southern states, to invade Canada. I mean, what was the point? So he couldn't get enough troops to invade Canada. Um, and in fact, the New Englander... Um, 
militia actually rebelled against uh, General Dearborn, forcing the entire army to stay in um, winter quarters in Albany. Um, the assaults, the first assault duly fails, and on the uh, 16th of August, um, General Hull had to surrender. Um, added to this, there was um, they didn't have a lot of money, and the uh, government had to go cap in hand to the bankers of New York, in which large amounts of high-interest loans had to be made. So this quick and simple war, where they thought, yeah, we'll take Canada in a few months, be over by Christmas, started going horribly wrong, and he looks like he's going to bankrupt the entire country, to the point that they actually send... Um, Samuel Adams over to Europe to speak to the Russians to arbitrate a peace in the first year of the war. Um, he wins the 1812 presidential election, possibly because they're at war and who wants to change president in the middle of that? He sees off DeWitt Clinton. Um, and then you have, but they do seem to have several successful battles, mostly against sort of um, British backed native armies, including the battle of Thames. Um, they also have a couple of naval victories, but and you won't hear me say this very often. Um, the US, one of them being the USS Constitution, which does quite well. But one naval ship going around sinking merchant ships and the odd warship doesn't win a naval war. Didn't work for the Germans in 1914 with the Emden and the Königsberg, which you'll never hear me say again. And didn't work for America. If the Royal Navy, uh, Kate Jameson, would, if she was here, would agree with me that if the Royal Navy, the same Royal Navy that hadn't that sank. Uh, the French and Spanish at Trafalgar hadn't been so busy blockading Europe and had come to America, it would have been a completely different thing. Um, they then try and invade Canada again. It all goes wrong. Uh, the UK capture Fort Niagara and burn Buffalo in 1813. But this isn't it. His biggest failure is yet to come. And um, so Madison has appointed uh, Brigadier, Brigadier General Winder, who has a record of failure. He'd recently been captured in July 1813 after the Battle of Stony Creek and sent back. Um, he becomes Commander-in-Chief of the Defences of Washington. Um, his, Madison's Secretary of Defence, John Armstrong, uh, fails to support Winder, and neither does his successor, the later President James Monroe. So on August 24th, 1814, even though I wrote 1914 for some reason, um, a British army under the Honourable General Robert Ross, who have marched from ships anchored in Benedict, Maryland, attack um, Bladensburg, just outside Washington, D.C. The militia, having suffered several volleys from the British, run. And in fact, it was so prolific, it is referred to as the Bladen, uh, Bladensburg races in some places. Um, one of the people who ran was Madison himself. Now, um, my granddad, who was at the Siege of McTilla, said um, in 44, said that in battle, you don't have heroes and you don't have cowards. You just have men reacting to the situation. But there comes a point after, after the battle where you've got to think, hang on, he's still running. He made it all the way to Virginia, which um, hopefully Charlie's going to tell me is quite a long way from, <laughs> from D.C. Um, it kind of mirrors what uh, General Gates did in the Revolutionary War. Um, it's the British then march into Washington Apparently, Madison's dinner was still hot on the table. Uh, his wife apparently tried to take one of the paintings and leg it. The British find no one of significance in Washington. General Ross, possibly, like Guy Fawkes, who was the only person to enter the Houses of Parliament with an honest intention. General Ross, the only man to enter the White House with an honest intention. They set fire to all the public buildings, which is why the White House is painted white, to cover the scorch marks, and then promptly leave. But... Cowardice, uh, not only is he incompetent, as we can see with the way that the war was conducted, um, 
he also was a coward. Now, even General Cornwallis and Burgoyne surrendered their swords to the enemy. They faced the enemy. Um, Admiral Bing was... Um, where, but then again, whereas famous cowards in history or people who've show, not shown enough background are still lamented about it now. Take, again, the aforementioned General Gates, Admiral Bing, who was executed for failure, and Admiral Trowbridge during the First World War, all of which, which have the stigma of cowardice. And I don't think Madison should get away with it. Incompetent, cowardly, these are not the qualities that you want in a president. And the only reason that the War of 1812 ended was because they won a few... A couple more pitch battles, bless you, princess. Um, <laughs> but they won, a, they won a couple of battles, and the war-weary British public, who had had enough of fighting the French, just said, why are we even fighting in America anyway? And lobbied the British government, and the British government said, we're done, sod it. And we had the Treaty of Ghent. So that's why I think he's, he's an awful president. Didn't encourage, encourage loyalty in his own troops in wartime, mishandled the war, crashed his country's economy, and then ran for the hills at the first sign of a Union flag. Outstanding. And we love the bit. We love that anecdote as British people where they sit down and eat his dinner as well. Uh, Holmes, you remotely turned on by this. Well done, Chris. I thought that's the best argument you've ever given. Thank you. (laughs) We should should let you American bash more often. (laughs) (laughs) And I still haven't got any rum. That's why I'm angry. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be pouring a drink in a minute. One day you were going to have to let go of the fact that they're not part of the empire. They left. Chris, a long time ago now. Technically, California still belongs to us because it, because it was established by um, one of the Tudor explorers, I want to say Drake, and the, the natives signed loyalty to Britain, but California didn't sign the Declaration of Independence. So in theory, it still belongs to us and they should give it back so we can get taxation. If, if you're calling on Drake to support your argument, go and give your head a wobble. Not really? <laughs> Um, when, they, uh, when, when the British got to Washington and had their dinner, was that the first time anyone British had tried a corn dog? <laughs> um, I still don't know what one of those is. It's a sauce, It's basically a hot dog in batter on a stick. Don't, don't we is have it them covered in liquid sausage? cheese? Otherwise, it's un-American. No, I don't think there's any cheese on it. Not the ones no I've cheese. had. No cheese. It's like, a, it's like a maize kind of stuff that goes around it. It's not, it's not batter as such, like a battered sausage. Yeah, it's kind of a breading that uh, you find at those uh, state fairs where the guys with the ACDC sleeveless T-shirts and the marijuana leaf tattoos who run the uh, the Ferris wheel equipment, the, those are the places where you find corn dogs. I went to the South Carolina leaf. State Fair. My friend said to me, I will take you there. It will be like watching a nature program. And it was. <laughs> I went to a state fair in Buffalo. I was surprised to find that a very high percentage of the people there were lacking limbs. I wasn't <laughs> sure without anything, why that was. The, the deep-fried gummy bears were particularly interesting. Well, are, you, are you sure that was like a state fair and not a, a Special Olympics event? <laughs> there was pig racing. I think that's more state fair than Special Olympics. So yeah, I'm I'm sure that to, wasn't Gillingham. Um, it's almost like the round of like mock the week things people have never said about america they've got the best food (laughs) i went to um something in in knoxville in tennessee and i thought it was like a state fair or something it was a big party and a parade and then i realized it was being hosted by the daughters of the confederacy 
Um, and then the marches started. And it was some kind of modern Nazi rally in the centre of Knoxville. Uh, no, Dorman, possibly English people can't bash American food, but you're Irish, you can shut right up. <laughs> we just recorded an episode about early modern recipe books and it turns out that Britain was really creative until the French came along and told everybody it was fashionable to eat boring food. To blame the French, it works mm. for everyone. Wendy... How do you yes. feel about this president? This was much more than I have ever known about him. Um, I think that a lot of this is not discussed in, in certainly not in history classes back in my day. Um, I think it was a very compelling argument, though, by the way, I, I will speak up for corn dogs because uh, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> my daughter also loves them. Especially like there's little mini one. Never mind. Um, I did not. I did not know this about James Madison. He's considered to be quite heroic, and he's not. John, were you fooled? You know, I, I was uh, warned by the line in Hamilton: "Madison, your med is a hatter, so take your medicine. Damn, you're in worse shape than the national debt is in." Um, <laughs> I think that Madison, you know, we think of him as the author of the Bill of Rights, which enshrined a lot of great liberties, like the right for me to have an even more awesome guns than the Enfield rifle that uh, Locke has probably uh, uh, got loaded. But uh, Madison seems to embody kind of what we call the Peter Principle, where you're promoted above the level of your competence. And as a, as a congressman, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, author of the Bill of Rights, <clears throat> I like Madison, but you know, war and peace issues are not only important to any country, but they're ones where our presidents uniquely have a lot of power. And if you, if you screw that up, uh, you're gonna be pretty high up on the list of uh, guys who didn't make the cut. Hilariously as well, uh, being promoted above your competency level, that's exactly what we were saying about Colin Farrell and acting last week, isn't it? <laughs> right, okay. The next one is the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. And I cannot say his name without wanting to say on the end of it, had a big block of cheese. And if you've watched The West Wing, you will understand why. Uh, because he did have a big block of cheese, but we don't need to hear about it right now. But we loved Leo and it was so sad when he died because he died in real life as well. But Alina, yes. this argument which you have written yourself. I have <laughs> written this argument. Oh, no help. Nobody has helped me. Yeah, the fact that Karen couldn't make eye contact with her webcam when she said that tells us it's a lie. But go on, tell us why Andrew Jackson sucked. It is a total lie. Uh, she half prepped this. The rest of it, I kind of just did a bit of Googling. Uh, not that I've ever Googled any historical knowledge before because I'm such a wealth of knowledge. Um, so Andrew Jackson, what a lovely fellow. Absolutely, such a charming lad. I was born in March, uh, 1767. God, I'm struggling with this stuff unless it's 20th century. Um, in North Carolina, he had kind of a shitty upbringing, really. Uh, when the British did some sort of invading in whenever it was, um, he was captured by the British and they kind of imprisoned him because he refused to stand the boots of a British officer. So they struck him across the face. Uh, so he kind of got some shit from the British, hate the British. So far, he hates the British. Let's start with that. And he ends up purchasing some property um, and becomes a wealthy slave-owning planter. That should give you a hint of where we're going with this. Sorry, Beth, my guy actually takes this a step further. 
Um, he fights in the next British war in 18 whenever. Um, and he becomes a national hero for like the New Orleans battle or something. Something along those lines. So he is this amazing guy and we're going to vote him in for president. Silly Americans. He runs for president on 1824. Um, but Quincy Adams becomes president instead. So he tries again in 1828 and he defeats him this time, Quincy Adams, in a landslide. But why is he the worst president? So this lovely, charming man, as you can hear the sarcasm in my voice, committed crimes against humanity. Okay, I have a war criminal here. He hated black people. He hated the British. And most of all, he hated the Native American Indians. What did he do with them? Well, he decided to clear um, Cherokee American Indian land from um, southern part of America. Um, why? Because he wanted to make way for um, slave plantations. So what he's doing is he's taking one form of one form of genocide, literally, for another. What a just fantastic! Let's just keep going. So he owns hundreds, hundreds of slaves, and um, he really doesn't like Northern abolitionists. He hates them, totally hates them. And he makes his views not just private, he makes them incredibly, incredibly public. So in 1835, he works with the Postmaster General to censor any anti-slavery mailings from Northern abolitionists. So basically, he's screwing with everyone. Um, he also creates uh, the Financial Panic of 1837 and creates a recession for seven years. Um, he basically tries to stop other American leaders from investing in American infrastructure he has a feud with the National Bank, really smart, smart, very smart man. And um, when he decides to remove the American Indians, to, he, he basically wants to further white supremacy and slavery and to gain support in the South. Um, I haven't got my camera on. If you could just see my face, I'm scowling. Um, it's just your face. It's just my face. Um, it, I mean, this was his top legis- legislative policy to get rid of the American Indians, to make way for more slavery. I just, I can't wrap my head around this. What, how does he do this? He stops paying, um, I could never say this bloody word, you know, annual money to tribal chiefs. Um, he basically stopped them from passing tribal laws. He tried to destroy the tribal governments. They had no rights to vote. They had no rights to sue or to go to court or testify in court, let alone dig gold on their land when it was discovered. So it's your land, you can't dig it up. He actually causes the death, uh, Cherokee alone, between four to 8,000 of them, and then thousands of others from other tribes. They end up starving. They um, die from disease, lack of clothing, lack of, lack of their food. They're horrific conditions. And they're forced to march um, thousands of miles. To relocated. He relocates about 45,000 of them. Um, moving on to a bit of slavery, he is a very, very ruthless, sadistic slave owner if any of his slaves ever ever ran away he would uh, hunt them down and he'd offer a reward of 50 dollars per slave he enjoyed public brutal whipping of people who um who basically defied him or did anything wrong and then the americans put him on the 20 dollar bill so not only was he a racist an incredible racist he was a sadistic absolutely sadistic bastard and he will be coming off the 20 dollar bill apparently so Thank you very much.
So I can't come to the phone right now because we're having a best moments of the West Wing chat and I'm just trying to type, dude, that shooting in the opening two episodes of season two are the best bit of television ever. <laughs> oh my God, when when the, you realise Josh has been shot. Anyway, the cheese wanker, um, we were led to believe by Leo, God rest his soul, that... Um, giving out the good thing. But actually, it turns out he was a total wanker, John. Yeah, you know, now in full disclosure on Jackson, I, I have an ancestor, literally, a uh, Cherokee Indian who was born in Georgia in the early 1800s and died in Oklahoma in 1842. So I'm kind of wondering how that happened. Do you think he was like, yeah, I hear the barbecue is really good in Oklahoma or, you know, maybe like tornadoes or something. Um, in terms of a legacy, uh, presidents, there are places in domestic policy where presidents can be powerful. Um, I think one of Jackson's legacies will be uh, the displacement of, of American Native Americans out west, uh, which turned out to be the longest, saddest conga line in history. Um, I suspect that Andy Dorman may take issue with that, but the Irish didn't have to walk quite as far to get to Connaught. Indeed. Wendy. Fan of he would have absolutely, he would have been my choice. Um, if I was, if I was coming up with a candidate, he would have definitely been my choice. Um, I live out West um, and I see the conditions in which Native American Indians continue to live um, in, the, in the bits of reservation land that are put aside for them, um, where there is no water and no place to grow crops. Um, some of the most depressing areas of this country, um, some of them within about two miles of my house. Um, I also heard a story about the battle that he so heroically won, which I'm understanding was a big fuck up on everybody's part. Um, and then he declared martial law and wouldn't let martial law go because he was so afraid the British were going to come back and take the city again. Um, so he completely steamrolled over the Constitution. Um, he steamrolled over laws that he was supposed to support. So, you know, he would have he would have definitely been since 45 is exempt. Mm. Um, he would have been my vote. As having, you know, like my road trip with Charlie and that, driving through New Mexico and seeing some of the land where the Native yeah. Americans have been put is just disgraceful um, and the poverty that exists and the, the sort of shacks people are living in. And you just think, surely you fucking owe people more than this. Absolutely. I mean, we have these huge swaths of land that are along rivers. Um, but then, oh, wait, we, we dammed the river um, so that we could send the water elsewhere. So places that used to have huge fields of crops um, are just absolutely desolate. Although this will cheer you up. Um, I got us a reservation on a reservation when we went to Monument Valley uh, and didn't mm -hmm. tell Charlie about the whole Navajo no alcohol thing, which was hilarious when he figured out he was drinking non-alcoholic beer. But anyway, <laughs> I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that, by the way. That would have been good. Karen, you helped write that. Not a fan either. No, no, actually Jackson was like my, you know, was one of my first options. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, uh, there's um, the inauguration story of Jackson. I don't know how many of you know that, but the White House used to be, you could just like walk into it. That's where the whole big block of cheese thing for West Wing comes from. And his Jackson's inauguration the crowds got so rowdy that he had to sneak out and stay overnight in a hotel 
the night of his inauguration and the furniture got so damaged and like filled with gunk and tobacco juice and stuff. They had to replace like half the white house furniture and things like that. So, you know, he was like the, you know, route, you know, it was rowdy and crazy coming in and rowdy and crazy through his presidency and rowdy and crazy going out. Um, but also, interestingly enough, like he he sort of promoted this kind of folksy everyman attitude, but he, you know, his private home was like English country manor in Tennessee, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So he he's got a lot of like dichotomies with him that are interesting to look at. Holmes. The only thing I think I know about him, that he had a parrot that he taught to swear that it swore so much... It had to be removed from his funeral. Yeah, correct. Yeah, but well, did we not have this story and that gut-wrenchingly, no one has written down exactly the curses, that, no one wrote down what the parrot said? Yeah, I think, I, I remembered it this afternoon and Googled it and I couldn't find the exact phrase or phrases he uttered. This has been on History Hack before, I'm sure it has, and I'm sure it was you going looking for it and that gut-wrenchingly, no one appears to have recorded the cussing that the parrot did, which would have been brilliant. The, the other I thing- heard it on History Hack, and I researched it thoroughly. I have nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. Not a word. The, the only other thing which might be helpful for our American colleagues to explain is that when these presidents were elected back in the day, because it's quite a while ago, how many people were voting? All of the uh, white males over 21 who owned property, for sure. <laughs> it was a very big, big tent back then. Uh, Marcus, next, with the ninth president of the United States. There was actually a fight amongst you um, over this one. Lots of you wanted to do William Harrison. Yeah, I really want to do William Harrison. And I'm going to try to, I know we've got a five-minute limit. I'm going to try to do it in under two and a half, because I think it's apt. Um, William Henry Harrison was the US's shortest president, and not in height, but in terms of days served. Tiny bit of... um, background. He was mostly a military man and senator and fought during the War of 1812 at the Battle of the Thames. Uh, Most famously, both meeting uh, Tecumseh, uh, the leader of the United uh, Tribes of the Native Americans, uh, and defeating him later on at the Battle of the Thames. Not only did he meet him, he rejected all of his terms uh, for a, a confederacy, basically would have granted proper rights and grounds to the Native American tribes uh, in Northern America, at least, which we kind of go back to the shithousery um, of their rights and how they've been steamrolled. It definitely comes from Harrison uh, more than Jackson uh, because he met in person and uh, he denied their rights uh, there and then. Uh, he then defeated Tecumseh in battle, and Tecumseh uh, was killed during the retreat, not during the battle itself. Which leads me to a little thing during my research that um, we've got that the battle that he defeated him in before that was the Curse of Tippecanoe, and it was uh, one of the Hen- William Henry Harrison's election uh, slogans with Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Tyler was his uh, vice president uh, elect. And the curse of Tippecanoe, uh, if anyone doesn't know, is that anybody uh, elected in the year of a t- that is divisible by 20 uh, has a ve- either a very bad uh, presidency or is assassinated. So uh, to put that out, uh, William Henry Harrison has a bad one. He doesn't live very long. 
that, that includes Abraham Lincoln, James Garfield, William McKinley, Warren Harding, Franklin D. Roosevelt, JFK, and Ronald Reagan, who was almost assassinated. So that does mean that in 2020, Joe Biden was elected, and uh, he's um, then lined up for assassination uh, because of a curse to some to Sunset. So we can have it here there first that in a couple of years when it happens, it's all William Henry Harrison's uh, fault when, Joe, when something happens to Joe Biden. So we're going to get that uh, out of the way. Uh, we're going uh, very early on. May. <laughs> As we all go on the CIA watch list. Carry on. <laughs> I mean, old age is probably going to get him first, but you know, if it doesn't... <laughs> Uh, I think I think we can blame uh, Native American curse as far more likely and believable. But no, William Henry Harrison, uh, he was elected uh, in 1841 and uh, under Canoe and Tyler too because he was very proud of him defeating the British and that's what the battle he's referring to under Tippecanoe. And there's a whole War of 1812 thing to be done there, uh, but we've kind of covered that. I don't want to bore the judges. Um, but he was only uh, there for the shortest period of time. He wanted to be seen as a hero of this war. And he did his inauguration in great uh, rain and uh, sleet and uh, horrible conditions. And during that time, he refused uh, extra layers and warmth and eventually got a cold and died uh, basically a month later. So there's not a lot to say from actually his, his time in presidency. Uh, but we are here to judge the worst president, I believe, Judge Holmes. Uh, that was the, was the term, not the, not the biggest arsehole of history. We've covered that in the past. So the worst president is a man who has one month in office, basically does nothing, and then causes a constitutional crisis. So they'd never had a president uh, die in office before. So it caused a problem knowing, not knowing whether the vice president was going to take office or if he was just going to fulfill the role of his office and then hand over. So he basically did nothing as president and then caused a constitutional crisis. So for that reason, and not just the reason that he's cursed Joe Biden and caused um, just an absolute clusterfuck with the Native Americans, which have never managed to recover. Um, hopefully that is William Henry Harrison in well under five minutes. It is indeed. Well done. Holmes. Interesting you talked about the assassinated presence. I read today that apparently Abraham Lincoln's dog was assassinated as well. Well, that's oh. it, Wendy's really. That's going to upset Wendy. Well, blame Harrison for killing puppy animals. Bastard. He was, he was knifed, apparently. I mean, some of this seems a little bit harsh. I mean, he died of a cold, which I'm sure didn't he didn't plan that. So a lot of it really wasn't his fault. Wendy, is there not issue with the silly claim about something about not wearing a coat that you were talking about? There is issue with that. Um, pretty extensive issue. Even the doctor who declared that his death was caused by pneumonia um, had doubts about his own diagnosis. Um, he may have died of, of, of pneumonia, but only as a secondary. Um, one of the things that I learned from, from looking this up um, is that there was a rather fetid swamp um, just a few blocks away from the White House at that time, where um, the, 
where the night wagons brought the night whatever. In other words, people's shit were piled into this swamp. Um, and it was left in the open air. Apparently, it was a reeking swamp. And there was a terrible problem um, with that kind of rolling downhill. Um, there is a lot to believe. Yeah, they, they did not wish to drain the swamp. Um, I, I, I think that they should have drained the swamp a little better at that time. Um, he had um, what they called chronic dyspepsia, um, as a lot of people do. And he took medication for that that erodes the lining of your stomach wall. Um, and uh, makes you very susceptible to bacteria. Um, there is very good reason to believe that he contracted typhus um, and that his typhus um, then led him to sepsis. His, his death symptoms were very consistent with septic shock. John, uh, John, you're nodding your head. Yeah, yeah. now what we remember him for is being the 30-day uh, or 28-day president uh, whenever I think of him, I think of the David Bowie song line, I've never done good things, I've never done bad things, I never did anything out of the blue. And uh, he was kind of a non-entity, except insofar as his death meant that we get to John Tyler and we start sort right. of in that direction. Let's just squeeze this one in before we break for drinks. James, you've got five minutes to tell us why John Tyler, number 10, deserves to be the worst president ever. Largely why William Henry Harrison is considered one of the worst presidents is because of John Tyler himself, the 10th president of the United States, nicknamed his accidency. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of what I tell you now that will make you think, oh, he sounds familiar. Uh, born in 1790 in Virginia, he was raised on a Virginia plantation he called Sherwood Forest because he identified himself as a political outlaw and as Robin Hood. And it still exists Day and you can take public tours on it. Um, he's also the president that had the most kids as well. His wife died while in office. He had over 15 kids. Uh, while in office, he married someone 30 years his junior. And also for the time being, his daughter-in-law was the first lady of the White House. Now, John Tyler, he was elected under Harrison as the vice president, uh, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. He was chosen because he was hopefully going to get all the southern states on his side. They get the votes and they could take out the city president, which they did. Um, some of his positives uh, was supposedly he solved a lot of wars. There was um, the treaty with China, which allowed them to do trade with America. There was the Second Seminole War, which, um, well, it wasn't really peace as in they more like massacred all the Seminole Indians in Florida until there was only a few hundred left and packed what remained off to the rest of them. Uh, supposedly, one of his good things uh, was the ability for people to buy, I think it was up to 160 acres from the United States government for effectively free. And then I think it was so much dollars for every acre afterwards um, because of Manifest Destiny, which oh, Manifest Destiny, he was a big believer of that, which is basically the Americans' belief that the special virtues of the American people and their institutions, the mission of the United States to redeem and remake the West in the image of the agrarian East, an irresistible destiny to accomplish this essential duty and have all of America under American control. And he also, one of his achievements, which I think is deplorable, was the annexation of Texas. He signed it in a few days before he left office, and it was completed by the 
the following president. Now, John Tyler as well, he was elected under the Whig ticket, um, which was very nationalistic. They wanted a national bank and that sort of thing. However, he was very constitutionalist and believed in state rights. And even though he was elected on a Whig ticket, he did everything possible to not put through their policies. He was the, they tried to impeach him but failed. He also... Yeah, the National Bank failed. He stopped that going through. He also believed the president should decide policy and not Congress. And he was the first president where Congress itself had to override his legislative veto. And considering the time and how it was just ridiculous, they they called him his accidency because they basically thought he was Jackson 2.0. And later, after he was kicked out, well, after his time was up, he failed in his re-election and he gave up for the Democrat candidate who also believed in the annexation of Texas. Eventually, he became a member of the Confederate States and the Confederate Congress, but died before he could do anything about it. So, yeah, John Tyler, just terrible president, <laughs> terrible person. Bloody hell, again, that's the best argument you've ever put forward. Partly because it made sense, um, and you've done some prep. So, <laughs> well done, James. Uh, let's ask John what he makes of Tyler. You know, the thing I love the most about John Tyler is that he was born in 1790. That was during Washington's first administration. He was president in 1841. His grandson is alive today in Virginia. So three generations, dad, son, grandson, cover the entire country's history, those three guys. Um, otherwise, we're, we're in that run-up to the, the pre-Civil War shit where there are a lot of divisive issues. Uh, James, you mentioned that uh, his, his veto was overridden. Um, was that in connect? Were these, were these slavery issues at this point? Because... You know, with Texas, the Mexican War, we get new states and the question of, are these states going to be slave or free? I'm not sure. He wasn't a slave overrode his veto on, but it was because he wanted to decide policy, not Congress. I think it was his exchequer system. Wendy? Um, I don't know anything about this guy, but I would be perfectly happy to give Texas back. <laughs> that, that's all I've got. Hi, <laughs> Yeah, not not much there. I I mean, it's been raised a few times, and that is the the way that the Native Americans were treated. And I think as Brits, we're we're not really a, that aware of this, are we? We've got more of an understanding of the sort of slavery issue. But in terms of Native Americans, it might be helpful if you gave us an idea of the amount of Native Americans that were displaced. All of them. What, yeah. Numerically, <laughs> what what what's that? It's difficult. I, I'm just trying to get my head around some sort of quantifiable size. I know Alina mentioned four to 8,000 deaths earlier on, which seemed quite a lot to me. But Wendy, this is your neck of the woods. I know. I don't know numbers on that. Um, I know that the numbers were huge. Um, I know that the treatment was absolutely horrifying. Um, there seemed to be, it was very popular to, uh, to send entire bands of thousands of people on these very, very long walks um, to godforsaken land for them to resettle there um, in the hopes um, that, that most of them would die along the way is my guess. But as far as um, the numbers are concerned, 
Um, I don't know. You know, my my family started out in in New England back in the 1600s, and um, we we had a few scuffles ourselves. Um, a, a generation of my of one side of my family was wiped out at their dinner table. Um, though I blame the French, and I think you'll all agree with me on that. I remember there were there was a uh, criticism of Winston Churchill when he was visiting Washington um, during the Second World War. Uh, by a, a woman who was a guest at a, a dinner of President Roosevelt about uh, the British treatment of the Indians. And he said to her, "Are you, uh, you'll need to be more specific. Are you talking about the Indians of the subcontinent who have grown in numbers under British administration? Or are you talking about the American Indians who have been wiped out virtually uh, by the United States? And she had, Roosevelt broke up in laughter and she, she uh, had no answer. Okay, we will endeavor, uh, endeavor Holmes, to get you a complete number using Wikipedia, inevitably, uh, while we all grab another drink, and then we'll be back with more presidents. Well, speaking yeah. of cultural genocide, um, here in the States, it was very common. Um, the way we, we handled these things for many years was to steal the children away from the tribes and send them to boarding schools. Um, and they were usually Christian boarding schools where the children were punished for speaking their own language or following any of their own native traditions. They were, um, they were forced to convert to Christianity and forced to speak English um, and never return to their families. In case you hadn't noticed during the break, we have continued to talk about the Native American plight. But Dorman wants to point out that cultural genocide, what about Mrs. Brown's boys? Which... It was America's but still mad. We've got to one massive asshole after a while. Don't we? <laughs> yeah, no, right. Okay. One of the things that I found really interesting was some of my um, Canadian friends that I interact with a lot from the War of eighteen twelve Napoleonic crossover. Is like that's why I wanted to mention Tecumseh. I think it's a fascinating character from history, and somebody I'd love to know more about. He was kind of like the last gasp for Native American like independent states uh, when it was, you know, it was a possibility to happen. And it was an uneasy alliance between the British and uh, the Canadians in the, the, the like Canadian office, so the Indian office, they called it, and then the uh, Indian Confederacy. And everyone was out to try to get something. But to come second, his confederation were out to try to get some land. They didn't really care which side of the border it was on. They didn't, you know, really need the border between Canada and the USA. They just wanted somewhere to live. And it just so happened the Americans were trying to kill the British at the time. And there was some advantage to be had. But it could, it, if, if the War of 1812 had gone differently, there might have been like a semi-autonomous region in South Canada, North America for the Native Americans. And it would have been a slightly different ending. But um, if, someone, if anyone gets the chance to look up to come really interesting uh, guy who almost achieved something really incredible princess go plan a podcast we'll do it right okay speak, hold on speaking well, of canada although justin trudeau is cute as hell um he has done virtually nothing just like we've done virtually nothing to improve the quality of life for what in canada are known as first nation mm. uh people their their conditions there are no better there's a lot are. of parallel issues isn't there with alcoholism and, and very much yeah. so and they, you know, having to have water brought in from hundreds of miles away. But yes, alcoholism is a huge issue. They're drinking antifreeze. Yeah. 
North America, get your shit together, is what we're saying. Yes. Right, mm-hmm. okay, we will move on. Uh, we're going moving into another sort of different era now because we're going on to the 13th president of the United States, who is the, well, Holmes loves a silly American name, Millard Fillimore Lockie. Millard Fillmore, yeah, I, this is part of the attraction. I mean, a, a very reasonable question around Millard Fillmore is... Um, who the fuck is Millard Fillmore, uh, of course, um, which <laughs> we'll get on to that. But, but the obscurity was, was part of the appeal for me because actually I sort of looked down the, the list of uh, American presidents and just thought, who the fuck is that? All right, let's have a look at him. And it turns out he was shit. So, yeah, let's, let's get him involved. Um, the other thing that I quite liked about him is if you change two letters of his name, you get Mallard Billmore, which would be a wicked name for an anthropomorphised cartoon duck version of the 19th century American president. Um, so, yes, that's the, partly why I chose him uh, as well. Um, all right, who, who is he and why was he shit? Um, right, well, I think we're, we're getting to the stage where there is certainly an appetite for removing slavery at this point. He's still part of the whole slavery discussion. We'll get to that. He's most famous, really, for becoming president when someone else died, um, which is never a ringing endorsement, um, really. But, you know, with President Zachary Taylor, apparently he ate a whole ton of fruit and drank a load of milk and got sick and died. Uh, And so that meant promotion. Uh, for, for Vice President Fillmore. Um, in terms of his tenure, I mean, there's not a huge amount in terms of foreign policy achievements to, to speak of, and there's a few bits around like Hawaii, Japan, and Cuba. But really, the, the defining argument of the day was slavery. Uh, the debate was raging hot in Congress, and you know, President Taylor's death uh, was a shock. So continuity really was needed at that time to continue the discussion. So when, when um, uh, Taylor's cabinet resigned, as is the kind of tradition, um, they, they would expect to have their resignations not accepted in, in the spirit of keeping things moving. Um, that didn't happen with our Millard. Uh, he'd been the whole lot. And to, to this day, I understand he's the only incoming president after a death or resignation who has sacked the previous bloke's cabinet uh, offhand and, um, and started appointing his mate. But let's get back to slavery because it's quite important. Um, his most famous piece of legislation in his tenure uh, was the Compromise of 1850, which sounds shit. Um, it definitely doesn't sound thrilling and no and to be honest a lot of it's quite dull um, it, there's some redrawing of state lines etc but the worst part which also pissed the most people off was the fugitive slave law and he tagged himself as someone who was anti-slavery really but the fugitive slave law uh, required federal officials to assist with the return of escaped slaves to their owners even in states where slavery was illegal um, now, this obviously extended to federal marshals or officials uh, who would be liable to be punished if they didn't assist with returning captured slaves. But actually, it's, it's quite a bit worse than that. I mean, ordinary citizens could be summoned to join a posse or be required to assist in the capture or transportation of alleged escaped slaves. And I use the term alleged escaped slaves uh, because the person accused of being an escaped slave wouldn't actually be allowed to give any kind of testimony or anything like that. So if they were a freed man, they couldn't actually resist the return to slavery by truthfully telling their story. Um, so, but hey, you know, this, this preserved peace in the union, this, this compromise was seen as a decent thing at the time. And, you know, you've got people in the streets saying that the union is saved. Obviously, it's a terrible piece of legislation uh, for everyone 
uh, involved on the receiving end uh, of this. And even the most positive viewers of the compromise um, can only really say that it's, they, they suggest that it bought time before civil war uh, for the North to further industrialize, which would, you know, help during the civil war. And to me, this sounds quite a lot like Chamberlain buying time for Britain to rearm. This sounds a lot like appeasement <laughs> to utter, utter scumbags uh, to me. I mean, obviously Cham Chamberlain sells Czechoslovakia down the river, but, but this is, you know, just his own countrymen, free countrymen potentially that he's selling down the river as well and making people, his own supporters do things that they don't want to do. Um, this was hated at the time by his own party, as well as being a filthy thing to look back on. The evidence is when it came to 1852, um, you know, he'd become president in 1850 after, uh, after Taylor's death. Uh, election was in, was in 1852. Uh, when it came to the Whig National Convention, uh, he wasn't actually backed by his own party to, to stand. Um, as an incumbent president, this is a pretty stunning demonstration of a lack of faith uh, from his own party. And actually, because of his policies, the Whigs were destroyed uh, after this and, and never stood again. Um, but he wasn't done trying himself because he came back, actually, in 1856 at the head of a new movement, a nativist movement. And, uh, this is going to sound really nice, isn't it? I mean, someone sticking up for the native people. No, 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 no. It's definitely not that. Uh, it is nativist in the sense that these were descendants of colonists or settlers. So absolutely not looking out for Native Americans. This is a populist, rabid anti-immigrant. And back when the population of the United States was about four dozen, okay, this is an anti-immigrant uh, movement. Anti-Catholic and anti-Irish, I thought I'd throw that in for you as well, uh, Dorman. Um, they call themselves the Know-Nothings as well, know nothings in the sense that when they're asked for sort of deliberate kind of, okay, tell us some detail about your policies and things. Oh, we know nothing. All right. Now the know nothings in the 1856 election managed to come third in that most famous of a two horse race, which is the American presidential election uh, with Fillmore at the head of it, which is pretty stunning stuff. Uh, in terms of you know, what people have since said, his biographer uh, said uh, no president of the US has suffered as much ridicule as Millard Fillmore. Um, uh, Harry Truman uh, mentioned him uh, on an occasion saying he was a weak, trivial thumb twaddler who would do nothing to offend anyone and was responsible in part for the war, the Civil War. Um, no one's heard of him, Millard Fillmore. So uh, he's so far in the dustbin of history that he's the, he's the bin juice at the bottom of the bin, uh, <laughs> essentially. So here we go. President Bin Juice, the slaver-appeasing, amoral xenophobe, he's the worst president ever. And he spunked on an intern's arm, Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes, are you sold? Yeah, I think um, what was slightly more alarming was when Lockie was talking about the fact that Zachary Taylor, was it, died from eating fruit and milk. And I, most, most parents go through hell trying to get their kids to t drink milk and eat fruit. And now you're suddenly finding out this is terrible and it could kill you. We've all been wasting our time. <laughs> Um, yeah, whether he had a, an existing stomach ulcer or something, gastroenteritis was the uh, diagnosis, and, um, and he keyed, killed over and died. Uh, I guess what I'm struggling with, with at the moment with all of these uh, earlier ones is that the sort of the, the slavery thing is running throughout all of them, and it's quite hard in my, and obviously everything that they did for slavery was terrible. It's quite hard to try and work out which was worse on that front at the moment. I mean, that law you mentioned, the Compromise of 1850. 
seems pretty bad. But, um, but this, is, this is clearly when there is a popular appetite for getting rid of slavery. You know, various countries around the world have made it illegal. It is the right thing to do. And he himself, himself has described himself as being anti-slavery. And yet, under his presidency, this worthless, you know, pathetic piece of legislation to appease the slavers in the South. Um, comes along and for me was it it actually in you know you you mentioned that it applied in states where slavery was unlawful was it actually enforced in those states I believe so it would have had to be yeah I I, I don't I don't know kind of I couldn't give you specifics but it must have happened (laughs) politically I'm not sure it would matter necessarily um for obviously it matters to the the individual slaves sent back to, uh, you know, Louisiana. But uh, from a political breakup, tension on the uh, body, body politic, if, if you back the law, then uh, that's going to carry a lot of weight. Um, Andy, I thought that was a, a great presentation um, until, you know, going through in that level of detail, I tended to think of uh, Millard Fillmore as just kind of a non-entity. Uh, uh, it was Joseph Heller who said, uh, some men are born mediocre, some men achieve mediocrity, and some men have mediocrity thrust upon them. Uh, I thought with Millard Fillmore it was all three, but uh, it sounds like he affirmatively uh, stepped in some shit with the uh, Fugitive Slave Act. And uh, it is hard to divorce the president from the really bad situational times that they were in, but it does sound like Millard Fillmore advanced the ball in the uh, shit show that became the Civil War later. It was kicking the can down the road a bit as, as far as... At best, yeah. yeah. Wendy? I completely agree. Um, and to, to be doing so ostensibly in violation of his own beliefs about slavery, um, that that just sort of cracks the whole thing apart for me. Um, what an unbelievably dangerous piece of legislation that turned out to be. Um, and he did it just to suck up. He didn't do it because he, he thought it was right. Yeah, I think there's no don't deny and he belongs on a short list. Right, yeah. okay. I still don't think we're jumping that much further forward in history because we're going to Clive. Because succeeding Fillmore is another turd, Franklin Pierce. Clive, you're on mute. We're missing your accent. It's all right, James. I was just finding my button. Takes <laughs> <laughs> a little longer these days, doesn't it, Clive? It, it does, it, it does. I intonated tonight. <laughs> Franklin Pierce would have said to Fillmore, when it comes to being a total bastard, hold my beer. In fact, he wouldn't, because Franklin Pierce would have drunk it himself. And... Uh, Fillmore's beer and everyone else's beer in the rooms. Franklin Pierce really was an arse of the highest order. He was a president who should never have been president. He got there absolutely by accident. He was a Democrat who caused the Republican Party to be created. He was a Northerner who supported slavery. He was an opponent and critic of Lincoln and a friend of Jefferson Davis. He was an expansionist who tried to fa- tried and failed to annex Cuba, who s- sent troops into the Native American territories. He was a drunk who drank himself to death. He was a perfect pillock. 
He was born in New Hampshire, which couldn't be more northern and non-slaving than you could hope for in 1804. He was a crap student. At uh, uh, college, he organized an unofficial militia and subsequently a student strike before moving on to qualify as a lawyer. Although not gifted jurisprudentially, he had a deep voice, which apparently assisted him in court. His wife, who appears to be long-suffering, refused to move to Washington with him when he became a congressman and then stayed on as a senator. He was in the Senate for six years, and in that time, what he was noted for was one thing and one thing alone, and that was increasing funding to the military and supporting the use of those funds to expand militias rather than coastal defences. In other words, at that time, what he was doing was building up lots of militias around the country, which was great when you could have a civil war coming around the corner. He went back to New Hampshire when he ceased to be a senator, practiced at the bar. Um, He very kindly at that time acted for a church group that was charged with abuse. And so he obviously came in to defend them because if you can't just attack Native Americans and slaves, why not go for child abuse as well? He was still very active in the Democratic Party and Although they are, um, many within it opposed slavery, he saw the opposition of slavery as a great threat to the Democrats, and he wasn't having any of that. Big fantasy was to be a military commander, so he jumped at the chance when the Spanish-American War came up. He was commissioned because of all his lack of experience as a brigadier general. He turned up at the Battle of Contreras, where his horse fell over, trapping him underneath. His troops all thought he was, had fainted, so called him Fainting Frank. But in fact, he had trapped himself and severely damaged his knee. At the next battle, he strapped himself to his horse so he could ride into battle, but was in considerable pain and passed out and took no active part. Went back to Concord and carried on being a lawyer. Until one day in 1852 he went to the Democratic Convention, sent down by the Democrats of his state. And the convention assembled in Baltimore, and deadlock occurred. They had something like 49 ballots. And on the first ballot, there were... um, Cass claimed 116, Buchanan 93, and the rest were scattered, without one vote for Pierce. But unfortunately, someone screwed up and tried a little bit of cleverness to break the deadlock. And it um, resulted in an absolute screw-up with Pierce being nominated. So he went in to fight the Whigs, and unfortunately, the Whigs split. The Whig candidate was General Scott, who had been his commander in Mexico. But the Free Soilers put forward a rival candidate, Senator Hale, And Hale and Scott just went hammer and tong for each other, pretty much leaving Pierce untouched. Apart from it was said of him by one of his opponents that um, he was an anti-Catholic, a coward, and an alcoholic, the hero of many a well-fought bottle. But the damage done to each other was such that Pierce won. Now, this is when it got a little bit nasty because he became president. His inauguration was an unmitigated disaster. Firstly, he was in a train crash a few days beforehand. He and his wife escaped, but his 
only remaining, uh, only surviving child, an 11-year-old boy, was killed, so his wife didn't turn up to Washington. His vice president had to be sworn in in Havana, Cuba, because he was suffering from tuberculosis. And so uh, Pierce went along on his Todd to his inauguration. He refused to swear on the Bible, but put his hand on a law book. I mean, yeah, that was a little bit strange. And then he gave a rousing speech about how he was going to expand the territories of America and how he was going to send the troops in to kill off as many Native Americans as he possibly could. It got even worse after he became president. Within a month, his vice president was dead and he couldn't find anyone to replace him. So Pierce had no vice president for the bulk of his time. In foreign policy, he failed to annex Cuba. He screwed up negotiations with Mexico. He backed the filibuster William Walker's ludicrous scheme to take over Nicaragua, the results of which are probably still felt today with American intervention in Central America. He failed to rid Central America of Britain. And he went on. He sent lots of troops into Indian territory. But slavery was where he really took the biscuit. Missouri Compromise of 1820 had held the peace pretty much between the slaving and non-slaving states. He, however, decided to ignore it. And with the, Nebra uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he allowed settlers in those states to determine whether they were going to be slaving states or not slaving states. Although where they were based, north of Missouri, meant they should have been non-slaving states. Settlers rushed into the states Violence erupted. There was, some have described it as a mini-civil war, and it was one of the first acts leading up towards the civil war itself. But he wasn't content with that. There, as, um, Anthony Burns, a, an escaped slave, turned up in Boston, and Northerners rallied in support of him. But Pierce sent in federal troops to enforce Burns' return to Virginia and to slavery. But even better than that, I mean, we've heard of one-term presidents before, but most of them are one-term presidents because they lose an election. Pierce wasn't even that good. He couldn't even get his own party's nomination. He got nominated originally to stop Buchanan getting in. Well, he lost the... Um, the nomination to Buchanan the next time round. And Buchanan was pretty bloody atrocious. So that just shows how atrocious Pierce was. After that, he went travelling for a while with his wife, who then dropped dead. He spent his time bitching about Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, writing voluminous correspondence to Jefferson Davis. And actually, I must say, I'm a bit surprised that no one chose Jefferson Davis as the worst president. But hey-ho. And all his correspondence was found when, Je when Davis was eventually captured. He tried to put together a commission of former presidents to resolve the Civil War, but his idea was rejected by the other former presidents. And if you look at the ones around that time, none of them were particularly appropriate people to do anything anyway. And eventually, he popped his clogs, and he died of cirrhosis. His there are some fake, quite good quotes of, 
about him and from him. One of the best ones about him was Teddy Roosevelt, who later wrote that he was a servile tool of men worse than himself, ever ready to do any work the slavery leaders set him. He himself said, there's nothing left to do but get drunk. Or subsequently, after the White House, what is there to do but drink? Or finally, there's nothing left but to get drunk. More worryingly, he made this statement. The founders, sorry, the founders of the Republic dealt with things as they, present, they were presented to them in a spirit of self-sacrificing patriotism and as time has proved with a comprehensive wisdom which it will always be safe for us to consult. And with that, he tried to justify slavery because the original constitution allowed slavery this constitution must be right, cannot be contradicted, and therefore slavery must be right. He also came out with some wonderful, absolute bullshit, um, like the constitutional impropriety of the federal government assuming to enter into a novel and vast field of legislation, namely that of providing for the care and support of all those who by any form of calamity become fit objects of public philanthropy, I, can find, I cannot find any authority in the Constitution for making the federal government the great almoner of public charity throughout the United States. In other words, he said that the government is not there to look after its people. They should look after themselves. I suppose it is an idea that a concept has been followed by many presidents since, but it is an abhorrent and nasty attitude and he was a horrible nasty unpleasant deeply unpleasant man who did have a very deep voice but no other redeeming feature whatsoever he was useless he pretty much threw america into the civil war and he did many many other bad things as well absolute twerp thank you well done clive and thank you once again for cockney masterpiece theater wendy what do you make of this president I knew nothing about this president before, but I agree with him entirely. That's all I got. Very good presentation. Likes the quotes, especially. <laughs> John. You know, we're now up to the fourth president during a time when slavery is one of those big dividing issues. It's coming to a head. And we know, we know how it, it plays out. Uh, Cl Clive, can, do you think that Pierce materially changed the situation for the worst or was he kind of carried along with the split between north and south over slavery such that if your number one job is to keep the union together there's not much else you can do what do you think he, he made it worse and he made it worse in a number of degrees firstly his great support for filibustering particularly southerly filibustering nicaragua cuba and it uh, various things with mexico point very much to trying to enhance the slave state vote in the Senate. And you know, a lot of I mean, Nicaragua didn't have much commercial value apart from as a route to California. But if they had managed to build up more territories down there and in Cuba and use them as slave states with representation in the Senate, it would have kept slavery cast in stone. And that was something that they were aiming at. His... Um, proposing of the Nebraska-Kansas Act was absolutely inflammatory. But what's really bad about this bastard is that he wasn't someone who was brought up in a plantation. It wasn't what he, you know, all he had known and got used to. This was a guy from New Hampshire. 
who suddenly embrace slavery. That, to me, is far more abhorrent than many of the others we've heard about for that reason. Sounds like a complete wanker, doesn't he, Holmes? Yeah, I mean, I think on behalf of certain members of this this group, Beth, Marcus, I don't think we can judge him for drinking too heavily. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but none of you have died of cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, let's not, um, the bar's still out and the uh, pub landlord's still in, so uh, let's not judge that too soon. We're trying, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> but also, none of you have stood for, for public office either while you're absolutely pissed. Yet. Again, not yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've, got, we've got a failed Lib Dem in the room who's normally drunk on rum, so. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, and I haven't heard any of you offer up drinking as your entire retirement plan. Yet. I'm not liking that it yet. <laughs> it, does, it does shorten the need for financial planning. Yes. You just, you yes. just described an Irish state pension. <laughs> John, what do you make of this one? You know, it, it, it is tough to... Uh, we, well, first of all... We've heard a lot about really nasty people with very bad habits, bad attitudes. Uh, we've, I think by my count, gone through four killers, uh, three or four slavers, and uh, a number of people who just have very odious personal habits. Um, you know, separate, it, it sounds like it's hard to get to that office without being something of an asshole, uh, but, but Pierce does seem like he's got, he embodies Kind of the best uh, or the worst of all worlds. Indeed. Right. Moving on. Who's next? Next on the list. Ooh, this should be good. Although I'm reliably informed, but Alina can't type, and that this is the 15th president of the United States, not the 18th, because like her sausage fingers claimed on the message. And that Karen is going to tell us why James Buchanan is the shittiest president America's ever had. Yeah, if, uh, if Franklin Pierce is telling everybody to hold their beer, James Buchanan is the mic drop of the president that we've, uh, that we've got. Because this is the guy who was president before Lincoln. So if anybody is going to be blamed for that final push into our civil war, it is James Buchanan. This is the guy who was almost impeached and went through, was under a congressional investigation for... Uh, for fraud and all kinds of stuff. Um, this is also a northerner. This is a guy from Amish country, Pennsylvania, who supported slavery and supported the South. Um, he was a president at a time where the president elected everything from like the postmaster of little, you know, nowhere town in middle of nowhere, USA. And he partisan packed the government by putting in people that he wanted. This is a guy who was a strict constitutionalist. So if it literally was not word for word in the constitution, it did not go. And he's somebody who absolutely compromised his morality trying to hold the USA together. He split his own party. Uh, he's Thoughts did not represent the majority. His secretary of war and generals gave weapons from the north to the south for our civil war. Um, he also was the president during the Dred Scott case, which was a very, very famous 
case. So while he was still president-elect, he's contacting the Supreme Court and bribing Supreme Court justices to have this case go the way he wants it. Uh, so for the uninitiated here, Dred Scott was a slave who had traveled to the North with the man who was keeping them captive as his owner. Um, in the North, they were saying that de jour, which is like by entitlement, that because he was now in a free state, he was free. And there was some precedent in legal cases leading up to this to fight this. This was sort of the test case that went to the Supreme Court. Uh, Buchanan bribes the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court comes down saying not only uh, is Dred Scott not free, but that Blacks in the United States have no rights of any kind and cannot be citizens. And Buchanan thought that this legal case would put the issue of slavery to rest completely. So we've heard a little bit about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, but... Um, in Kansas, Buchanan used bribery, he used extortion, he used voter suppression to try uh, to bully Kansas into going the way he thought they would go. Uh, bloody Kansas, pro and anti-slave factions were fighting. And then this led Congress to investigate his administration for corruption and for possible impeachment. Um, and if this all wasn't bad enough, this guy had such a distrust of big government and government doing anything to assist citizens that in 1857, there was a huge economic crash and he did nothing. Lincoln gets elected. Buchanan split his own party. Basically, this allowed Lincoln to become elected president. And while states were seceding from the United States, Buchanan literally sat back and didn't lift a finger, did not do a damn thing. So he has one of the most corrupt cabinets in presidential history, one of the most fraudulent, corrupt, you know, administrations in history, and literally was a northerner assisting the South into keeping slavery in order for, you know, which leads directly to our civil war. And then ends up being the president during one of the most hotly contested Supreme Court decisions. You know, now there's hardly anyone who would say this was a smart move on the Supreme Court's part that literally bribed the Supreme Court to say that Blacks in America could not be citizens. What a wanker. Um, I learn about you, Karen, but I looked down and looked up and everyone's got a silly hat on. So I'm <laughs> really sure what's been going on there. I think it all started with Dorman and a beanie. John, how offended are you by Buchanan? Buchanan has typically ranks near, at or near the top of the uh, creme de la creme of shit presidents. Um, you know, he, he reminds me, for, for one thing, okay, again, a lot of presidents are in a difficult position at this point. The country is breaking apart, and it's not because the president says necessarily we're going to be half slave, half free. It's there is a social fabric that is tearing apart here. Abraham Lincoln famously said after his inauguration, "If I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by keeping them in slavery, I would do it." If I could save the union by freeing half of them and not others, I would do it. 
there was a desperation on the part of a lot of these presidents we've heard about to save the union, but uh, it does seem like Buchanan put his thumb on the scale. Uh, it, it sort of like that that quote from Churchill to, uh, to Chamberlain, where he supposedly said, you were given a choice between war or dishonor. You chose dishonor and you'll have war. And that seems to be where Buchanan falls into. Wendy? I totally agree. He would have been my vote, my, my second vote, um, probably for worse, just his involvement in the Dred Scott case. Um, I share other people's confusion as, you know, my family were Northerners and how Northerners um, end up being proponents of slavery. Um, I don't know what it was in, what was in it for them. Um, it was a very, very confusing thing. Um, he was a terrible president. He chose wrong in every possible way. Um, but um, having, having Abraham Lincoln come along was the best thing that he ever did, even though he didn't do it. Holmes? Yeah, I think with some of the others, there was, a, there was sort of a case that the, the Civil War felt it was sort of inevitable anyway, and they were, in a way, slightly misguided, possibly misguided, but trying to keep a lid on it in a not very convincing fashion. But, yeah, he seems to be he seems to be slightly worse than the others, from what I can tell, from what I've heard. The, um, the court case, um, which the judgment was shocking, was that judged independently? Or was any pressure put on the judges? Yeah, the so after Buchanan was elected, but before he was sworn in as president. So when he was in that November to January time period, um, he was bribing Supreme Court justices. And then um, the day of his inauguration, he had a conversation with the chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, and then publicly said he would cheerfully, and that's quote, cheerfully accept whatever decision the Supreme Court said. Any more questions? Not for me. Excellent. Um, I find that it's my turn now because we're taking a bit of a jump forward to uh, the 20th sure. century. And uh, I have nominated Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, yes. As the worst fucking president ever based on him being mean to George V, but then I did go and do some digging. Uh, in my defence, if I'm wrong, it's because i got everything off of Wikipedia and I don't actually know anything about Woodrow Wilson other than the fact that he pissed off George V. So, he comes from a Confederate family, wanker. Uh, he's only five when the war starts, but still, no excuse. Potentially a philanderer as well, although God knows how he found two women to sleep with him, the sanctimonious twat. Uh, he was a governor of New Jersey. Ooh, big deal. What, like 12 voters in it? Uh, the only reason he even got in to be president is because Roosevelt split the Republican vote by running for a third term. There's no Team America without President Wilson because it's him. He's the one that does the America's responsibility to secure global democracy. What a shitbag. How many lives have been spent on that? This is a quote from an actual historian on Woodrow Wilson. He thought he always knew best because he thought he knew more than anybody else. Combine that with a powerful humanitarian sensibility and you get a president who wants to change the world for the betterment of mankind. Watch out for such leaders. This man orchestrated a new freedom scheme. Oh, what a nice guy. Yeah, if you were white, 
African-Americans crossed the party line to vote for him in 1912, but they were going to be sorely disappointed. When he was president of Princeton, while other Ivy League schools were admitting African-Americans, he fought against the idea. On his watch, the great migration surged. That's African-American people running to the north to get away from murderous hillbillies. And he took no action against race riots. Lynchings averaged one a week on his watch. He was a racist. His cabinet was full of racists. Segregated government offices, workspaces, bathrooms and cafeterias, discriminatory hiring practices all escalated during his presidency. In defence of his administration policies, he said that segregation removed frictions between the races. Dick. Don't even get me started on the plight of African-American servicemen returning home from fighting his war to face abuse and maltreatment. I hate a hypocrite and he's a stinker of a hypocrite. This is a man who wants to take American greatness and democracy to the world, who says Germany needs to be held to strict accountability, yet lynchings and race riots. All the fault of his notorious attorney general, A. Mitchell Palmer, say some, whatever. He's the man in charge. It's his watch. Apparently, it has been argued, his segregationalist opinions were simply the predominant public opinion of the time. Oh, my bad, Ross Kennedy, Wilson biographer, writing in 2013 without a fucking clue, I take it all back. He'll keep us out of the war, he said, until you vote for him. Then a few weeks later, he's joining it because his isolationist policy was junk. He's got pretty much nothing he wanted at Versailles. His unwillingness to compromise in France has been ranked to the, as the fourth biggest fuck up by a sitting US president. Although, in fairness, that was pre-2016 and I'm guessing it slipped a bit down the list by now. But you can argue that because he was so shit at arguing for what he wanted at Versailles, that's why Britain and France battered Germany and that's why we were guaranteed a Second World War. League of Nations banged on about it incessantly, did not stop the Second World War, and then America didn't even join it because his efforts at the diplomacy of peace were junk. George V, the man who's called boring and clearly wasn't a party animal, thought he was a boring bastard. George V never puts effort into describing people in his diaries. He actually describes him as a boring bastard. I'm paraphrasing. But anyway, and my beef with him is that in 1918, the royal family didn't get to spend their last few weeks with their son before he died. No one knew he was going to die, but whatever. Uh, They had a young child. They had a family at Sandringham and they didn't get to go and be there because Wilson decided he was coming to visit for Christmas. Apparently, he and his wife pissed off everybody in London because they were rude and boring and obnoxious. And then to crown it all, they had a dinner party at Buckingham Palace on Boxing Day, I think it was, where Woodrow Wilson got up being the sanctimonious dick that he is and thanked each nation of the Allies individually in Buckingham Palace for winning the war and forgot Britain. He was a twat. He was arguably the most sanctimonious twat ever to hold the office. He was a racist hypocrite who thought he was superior to everyone else, who left the country inherited in a complete shambles. He wouldn't even let go of the office after his stroke. He clung on for more than a year when he should have stood down. Actually, 
from the time of his stroke until he left office, he did not attempt to even talk to his vice president, let alone give him the power to actually do the job. The utter landslide that defeated him should tell you a lot about how he was regarded by the time he was done. Woodrow Wilson, dick. You know, the reason Wilson gets dogged on a lot is because of his performance at Versailles and war and peace issues are really important. You know, how much blame does Wilson get for Versailles um, as opposed to the Clemenceau and the, the rest uh, out there? Uh, I think it's pretty well accepted that Britain, that had Britain and France not crucified Germany. But then if you're Woodrow Wilson and you're the fucking daddy and you're the smartest guy in the room, you know that the countries that have been burned the hottest are going to want revenge. And you are the mediator. You are the sensible voice in the room. And it's on you to help mitigate that, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, America had a, a loud voice in those negotiations. This isn't like Prince Faisal trying to get out of the British what they promised him in Arabia. This is America. And he, because he's so catastrophically bad at his job, he, it allows us and France to run riot. Also, I mean, on that, wasn't it? It was his 14 points thing, wasn't it, that Clemenceau said, oh, God only gave us the Ten Commandments or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> basically. He was exceedingly fucking dull. Every description of him in London in 1918 is like, apparently like even just sitting for a conversation with the man was torture. Wendy? I have nothing. I think you stated it perfectly. Um, everything that I read about him is exactly what you said about him. So we must have just read Wikipedia. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, and I don't hey know. In, in his defense, uh, in his defense, director uh, D.W. Griffith really loved him. <laughs> well, there you have it. I, I think he was the, the only president to keep sheep on the White House lawn as well. I garnered that this afternoon. It just makes him an even bigger tosser as far as I'm concerned. So if you're black, you should be treated like shit and use a different toilet to everybody else. But you'll let a sheep live in the garden. What this was that? the guy that watched Birth of the Nation in the White House, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. yes. Twats. Right. Okay. And I'm done. And it's very unsurprising that although the man that defeated him um, did so by an absolute landslide, Warren Harding is regarded as an utter chump as well, isn't he, Kit? This is number 29. Oh, he is. And I wanted Warren G. Harding. Um, and I want to just make this very clear. Several people seem to get him confused with the rapper Warren G. They are not related. Um, <laughs> Bizarrely, I have to say that. Anyway, yeah, I've picked the 29th president, Warren G. Harding. And most pro people probably haven't heard of him, but that is because he is the United States' dirty little secret. They deliberately expunge him from history every chance they get. Harding served from 1921 to 1923, dying of a heart attack halfway through his term. He was age 57, and it's a good thing he did, because, and I can't believe I'm saying this, his administration was the most corrupt in US history. So let's very quickly whip through who he was. He was born in Ohio, became a senator, and during World War I, he made his name by insisting that Woodrow Wilson should declare the United States a dictatorship, arguing that democracy had no place in a time of war. Um, we mentioned that Wilson didn't succeed in initiating the League of Nations. That was because of Harding, um, who basically campaigned actively against it and led a revolt of the Senate. He was a terrible politician. And the thing is, he knew it. During his presidential campaign, he had no policies whatsoever other than 
we're going to return to normalcy and spent the entire time relaxing on his front porch. But he was born with a gift. He looked like a president. He was exactly what someone in the 1920s imagined a president to be. He was the whitest of old white guys. And so, without lifting a finger, he stormed home to the highest popular percentage win in history, 26% higher than his rival. And Harding was lazy, even in office. He admitted himself he was completely incompetent, had no idea what he was doing, and should never have been elected. His presidency did precisely three things. He vetoed a bonus bill that would have given soldiers who fought in World War I financial support. He enacted a massive tax cut for the rich, and he saw the Tulsa Race Massacre, the single worst racial violence in American history in which a white mob ransacked Black Wall Street uh, community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Despite Harding uh, speaking out three days later after the event, it turned out that no one was ever charged for destroying 35 city blocks and murdering between 75 and 300 residents, injuring at least 800 more. But never mind those policies. Harding just decided to turn the White House into his personal swingers pad. At the height of prohibition, the entire US had banned alcohol but the president himself was getting shit-faced on booze and having orgies, with various cabinet members acting as his pimp. Yes, orgies. Harding loved two things, poker and poking her. In fact, he commented that it was a good thing he wasn't a born a woman because he wouldn't spend his entire life pregnant purely through the quantity of prostitutes he got through. Numerous times these parties got out of hand, including one swinging party where Harding attended where a prostitute was dancing on the table, slipped, hit her head, and died. The president had to be whisked out of the room by an embarrassed Secret Service. He also had several mistresses, both before and during his time in office, and indeed was only elected because one of them was given a $25,000 bribe and a free trip to Europe so as not to derail his campaign. The most notable of his mistresses was Nan Britton, who he regularly smuggled into the White House and fucked in a closet just down from the Oval Office with the Secret Service keeping watch outside. We know this because Britton had Harding's love child, a fact later proved by DNA testing in 2015. And that was about the same time the Harding letters emerged, because Warren was a very randy so-and-so and used his time in the Oval Office, sat at the Resolute desk to write smut. To give you a sample, the President of the United States wrote, Wouldn't you like to get sopping wet out on Superior? Not the lake? For the joy of fevered fondling and melting kisses? He also wrote several letters on behalf of his penis, who he named Jerry, including, Jerry told me to say that you are the best and the darlingest in the world, and if he could have but one wish, it would be to be thrilled by your pink lips. That is the President in the Oval Office, begging for a blowjob. But the reason I picked Harding isn't the perviness. It's the corruption of his administration. The dude was so far into scandal, it is impossible even now to comprehend it. When he died, the first thing his wife did was rush to the White House and start burning documents. So this is only the stuff we know about, the tip of the iceberg. Harding's cabinet ran a land sale scam over building veterans hospitals for people returning from World War I, each pocketing thousands. His attorney general, Harry Doherty, was linked to multiple scandals, including a payoff of half a million dollars from a German company and offering permits to bootleggers to make whiskey for the White House. Jess Smith, Doherty's bagman, was later found in Doherty's room dead from a gunshot wound. The circumstances to this day remain unclear. 
the U.S. shipping board sold ships worth $250 a ton to companies for as little as $25 a ton. Because, guess what? The officials took bribes. But the real peach is what's called the Teapot Dome Scandal, which before Watergate was considered the biggest scandal in U.S. politics. I won't go into the ins and outs of it. It's to do with oil reserves to private companies. But profits were made and bribes were taken, which resulted in the Secretary of the Interior going to prison, the first cabinet member to end up doing jail time. Now, Harding died before all of this came out. But once it was revealed, the revelations were so embarrassing, the Republican Party struggled to find someone to inaugurate his tomb. Today, Harding is consistently ranked as the worst president for his laziness, his incompetence, his hypocrisy, his breaking multiple laws, his corruption, his tarnishing of the office, his contribution to the start of World War II by derailing the League of Nations, and his turning the White House into a speakeasy. As Malcolm Gladwell put it, people elected Warren G. Harding because he looked presidential. Unfortunately, he wasn't. Um, Well done for making him sound like an absolute knob. You passionately wanted that one. Right, John. Yeah, his, uh, we remember him for his letters, and I think if there were a film biography made about his life, it would be classified as a shorts and scandals epic. Um, he's one that I think the League of Nations, perhaps more so even than, than uh, uh, what uh, Wilson did at Versailles, is something that kind of enabled the dictators of the 30s. Uh, we didn't have a very effective League of Nations. But I do give him a little bit of credit because he uh, he voted for the 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 act that in that implemented prohibition, the absence of alcohol in the uh, sales of alcohol in this country, and that gave rise to what I consider the second best campaign slogan in history. A few years later, when a Republican ran against prohibition, so that that made him a wet in the term of the time, not like Margaret Thatcher called wet. But uh, his campaign slogan was, I kid you not, make your wet dreams come true. So <laughs> at, least, uh, at least Harding contributed to uh, a slogan down the road. But he seems like an absolute uh, cretin. Holmes? Yeah, I mean, he, he sounds like a right piece of work. I'm always slight, I mean... I wonder if I missed out on a bit of a trick. You know, in, in my younger days, if I'd wrote slightly rubbish erotic letters from my cop that I'd given a name to, maybe I might have been more successful amongst the ladies. What would you have named your cop? I don't know, Jeff, something like that. Jeff. Yeah. Warren G. Warren G. Call it Warren. Let's go around the room. Marcus, what would you call yours, Princess? It's going to be a princess name, so um, how about Tatiana? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I would love to see you try and sell that to your This girl. is going to be a new Mills and Boons out in 2022. Keep your ears peeled. History hack exclusive. Can you video yourself explaining this to Katie? Yes. And also, um, also Land of History. Josh is very confused about the whole tiara thing on Twitter right now. Just tell him to come and join the Zoom chat because he seems very baffled and it would just be easier if he could just sit in here and use the chat function. There's too many people who don't drink on our chats. It's just getting too sober. We need more drunkenness. Send Josh the yeah. link. Uh, let's not go around the room. Uh, we, we'll have that at the end. Oh, so just, just me then. Great. Yeah. I'll do everybody else when we go around <laughs> at the end. Yeah. Uh, right. um, again, 
said very well, said very completely. Um, Even in America, we're taught about the Teapot Dome scandal. um, And even if he did not originate it, he was certainly a big part of it. um, And he he led our country in a very, very negative direction. Things went very badly afterward. Yes, they did. Right. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. We've got three left. Next is Dorman, who has gone for president number 33, Harry Truman. Right. Um, I don't anticipate winning tonight, um, but I do think it's important that we call out some serious issues with presidents that are deemed good. Truman, in a number of the things that Kit sent to the group, ranked in the good section of the presidency. But in all honesty, from what I can see and what I've read, this is completely unjustified. The reason I would argue that Truman is one of the worst presidents is not for anything particularly comical, which is admittedly unusual for me. It was because of the precedent he set. I would argue that Truman was responsible for the Cold War taking the shape that it did. And had he had an ounce of diplomatic guile and backbone, post-war Europe and the world might actually have prospered in a manner in which it just didn't because of his incompetence. This is a bad president, not because of his actions, but because of the pretext and premise which he set up for future presidents. The second half of the 20th century, forced American exceptionalism, nuclear tension, Cold War going hot, and the inability for Russia and the US to cooperate on anything can all be traced back to this little racist asshole who didn't even want the job in the first place. So Truman did not want to be president. He said himself, when a reporter first called him Mr. President, he said, said, I really wish you wouldn't call me that. And he meant it. And you can kind of understand where he's coming from. He took power after the death of FDR in the midst of the Second World War. That's an unenviable task for the best of times, even for someone so reluctant. But he was just a terrible human being. I mean, we've talked about slave owning racists, but at least they were in the 19th century. This guy, 20th century politician, viciously racist, known for throwing out hateful slurs towards blacks, Asians, Jews, Mexicans. I don't care what kind of climate he was in. He wasn't of his time. This man was a dick. Now, he comes to power during the Second World War. And obviously, when talking about Truman in the Second World War, you do have to talk about the bomb. Now, Kit warned me not to talk about the bomb, and I'm not going to talk about the first one, but I would like to talk about the second one. The merits of dropping the bomb on Hiroshima can be argued for a number of reasons. Nagasaki held no military value whatsoever. Telford Taylor, who was the chief prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, and I think knows a thing or two about war crimes, said, the rights and wrongs of Hiroshima are debatable, but I have never heard a plausible justification for Nagasaki. The Nuremberg guy is saying that, need I say more? When asked later on in his life, was it a tough decision to drop these bombs? He said, hell no, I made it like that and snapped his fingers. And he called Oppenheimer a crybaby scientist for expressing concern about the weapon that he had helped build. This man is not a pleasant person. And as I mentioned at the start, my gripe with Truman isn't the bomb dropping per se. It's his policy post-war and his complete undoing of a lot of hard work carried out by Roosevelt. Roosevelt had tact. He was able to navigate the imperial ambitions of Britain and the heavy-handed socialism of the Soviet Union. He was deft. He knew when to take a step back. He, knew the under- he understood the give and take of modern diplomacy. Truman 
was a hammer-wielding child who took everything personally and had the diplomatic dial of an ironing board. America was massively ahead of the Soviet Union post-war. It was relatively untouched compared to the Soviet Union. Its economy was booming. He did not need to push the Soviet bear around, but he chose to because he was a bully. His Secretary of War, Harry Stimson, predicted that doing so would only speed up Russian nuclear development. Truman dismissed him. And as it happened, Stimson was spot on in his prediction. He, Truman epitomizes the myths that surround the Cold War. The idea that Russian aggression was dominant and is only confronted by American containment policy. But when one looks at something like 1946, it's Russia who spends most of that year trying to contain its communist allies. And even Americans recognize this. In 1946, a Gallup poll of America only saw 26% of them thinking that Russia desired world domination. For context, 13% thought the British did. And yet Truman managed to undo any kind of good feeling through his presidency. He sabotaged efforts to reconcile with them. He pushed for bigger and better bombs and didn't consider the ramifications of doing so. And I'm sure even Kit will agree with me that one of the most egregious examples of this was the Akison Linenthal report. This report was designed to de-escalate the arms race by placing the mining, refining, and utilization of world's nuclear materials under the International Atomic Development Authority, limiting its use for military means. In its first incarnation, it was tailor-made to be palatable to both the US and the USSR. It could have completely changed the shape of the Cold War. And Truman handed it over to a crony of his that he owed a favor to, Bernard Baruch, a chap who hated Russia was a vehement anti-communist and thought the bomb was central to U.S. superiority over Russia. Baruch completely changed this agreement, making it pro-American to the point where Russia would never accept it. Truman had the opportunity to replace him, but, coward and bully that he was, when confronted with an actual decision, he backed down. He himself called it the worst blunder of his presidency. And I would agree. Had he, had this, he, had he taken this opportunity, he could have dismantled the nuclear arms race before it even began. This was once in a lifetime, and he bottled it. And this dominates 20th century politics thereafter. Now, at the other end of the scale, I read an article suggesting Truman was a great wartime president. Whoever wrote this article had clearly never heard of a peninsula called Korea. On the 25th of June, 1950, Truman was given the opportunity not just to end the war, but to lead America through one in its entirety. And it's safe to say the Korean War did not turn out particularly well for the United States. He authorized deployment of American forces in August, and he placed Douglas MacArthur in charge of operations. Now, yes, the outflanking maneuver at Incheon is brilliant. The counterattack afterwards was vindictive and provocative. The man wanted to cut Korea off from China with a nuclear wasteland, and yet he made a choice for command. Chinese involvement in the conflict completely humiliated America, and okay, they managed to secure a draw by the end of it on the 38th parallel, but you can hardly consider it a successful conflict. His term was riddled with corruption and scandal. He forced himself into proxy wars, pushed arguably into a far more anti-Western stance than it otherwise had been, and condemned the world to decades of tension and tit-for-tat bullshit that we're still putting up with today. There was even an assassination attempt on his life. Harry Truman was a little racist shit, in over his head and completely devoid of diplomatic guile. I don't anticipate winning tonight, but I don't understand the hero worship that is lauded upon him. And that's my case anyway. And for that, I really like the fact that you came up and made that argument. And I'm going to go straight to John because John has written and published award-winning books on American leadership in World War II. John, what do you make of his argument? 
I mean, that, that was a very good presentation because on one hand, the uh, Woodrow Wilson is kind of the author of the messia messianic American, you know, we've got to make the world safe for democracy attitude, but it was limited. It was limited throughout the 30s. Uh, in fact, we were isolationists. Uh, Truman did seem to be the one who had to take the hard line everywhere. And I, I guess the, the question I've got is, do you think that the, the, the reliance on nuclear brinkmanship, which Truman began, um, is that something that we'll never know, but do you think it prevented more wars than it created? I think had he disarmed or de-escalated the conflict, it would have been more beneficial. And even if, um, I mean, it's a difficult one because first of all, this isn't really my area of expertise. It's something I've read a little bit on for this, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert. But from what I can gather, the bomb as a deterrent just encouraged proxy wars more so than just sort of face-to-face -face conflicts. And one could argue they might have just settled their differences. But had they de-escalated, maybe there would have been less need to settle their differences in the first place. I don't know, as I say, mm -hmm. not my thing. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good, very good presentation. It's excellent. I think the, the fear was that if different settling came in the form of conflict in Europe, um, then there was no other outcome than the Red Army marching westwards and if only conventional weapons were the were, were the weapons, then there wasn't very much that Britain, France and the US could do at that stage. I'd like to ask Kit about this one as well, because he he's obviously his chemistry kit and the bomb is something he knows a lot about. You were nodding your head. I was. Um, there were some interesting arguments. The, the Nagasaki argument is, is quite an interesting one. You're absolutely right. Nagasaki had no military value whatsoever. It wasn't actually the primary target um, yeah. of that. It was um, it was the secondary target. They choose to move over uh, to it because it was clouded over um, the primary target. The question of whether or not to use it was an incredibly tricky one. And we know that because there are historical reports. Um, there is debate about whether to use nuclear weapons at all on Japan. Um, the Frank report was the main contributor there. Um, but it's, it's always a very tricky one. In terms of bombing Nagasaki, I completely understand exactly where that's coming from. Whether a second atomic weapon bomb was necessary is a tricky question because we just, we're, we're, we're unclear what the Japanese would have done. It's entirely possible they would have continued fighting. If a, an invasion of Japan was required, we know that from casualty reports at Iwo Jima and Okinawa, it would have been horrendous. So I understand the sort of rationale there. Um, the part that you brought up quite interestingly about um, about later developments in terms of nuclear armaments and and essentially setting the stage for the Cold War. Um, I think you're, you're, you've got a very good argument there. Um, and um, I, I kind of struggle to, to fight against it. Um, Truman is seen as a very strong president, largely because he brought about the end of the Second World War, but he is building on FDR's legacy. FDR was the, for the majority of the Second World War, the leader. Um, and the actions that Truman took, what we have to remember is that nobody had ever dealt with power of that size before. The nuclear bombs were something that nobody had, could barely grasp as a concept. And so to wrestle with those decisions must have been incredibly difficult. Um, and to somehow make choices and policy and regulate them, an incredibly difficult moment. Yes, it wasn't ideal, mistakes were made. 
Um, I think you're a little harsh with him on Korea. Certainly, we know that um, he was very much against MacArthur's actions in Korea. Uh, in fact, MacArthur is removed because he, uh, he instigates a policy that could potentially lead to nuclear warfare. Um, but overall, I think you made a very, very strong argument. Uh, John is saying as well, Truman Doctrine gave us Vietnam. Wendy, what do you think? Well, in my household, Truman was always presented as some sort of a hero. Um, my father was in World War II, and um, he was really, he, he was a doctor in World War II and very much a pacifist. And he totally supported Truman's decision about Hiroshima, um, talked about what the death toll would have been from an invasion of, of Japan. Um, the, the Nagasaki question has always been very difficult for me. Um, I, I didn't really think of this in terms of creating the Cold War. Um, it certainly seems to have put forth the he who dies with the most toys wins uh, philosophy. Um, I thought that Nagasaki was, was a horror. Um, I think the whole thing was a horror. Um, the idea that he was able to make a decision like that very quickly, I, uh, hopefully he was being glib about that. One would think it, you would have to think long and hard um, before choosing to do that. Um, but I think that he probably was looking for a quick solution. Um, and because people didn't knuckle under that day, he decided he needed to do it again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not easy to process, is it? Holmes, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think it's a very, very compelling argument, to be honest. And I mean, it was, it was possibly a difficult decision, but I, I think um, you're quite right. We are where we are now, probably as a direct, direct result of it. I always think it's ironic that the US tends to police the world these days and says, you, you can have these missiles, you can't have them, you can have them, and they're the only ones that have actually used them in anger. I think not amongst our guests and colleagues here today, I think there's probably a disconnect in the less travelled members of the US about the state that it put Europe in and how people lived behind the Iron Curtain for the best part of 50 years. Um, we're also at the state now where even with the reductions and now we've had a few more added, we're allowed to have a few more again. We've got thousands of the things enough to blow each other apart several times over. Apart from us Brits, we've got about 30 or something like that, haven't we, compared to the thousands that the US and the, the Russians have. Um, yeah, I think it's a very persuasive argument. Um, and, it, and its legacy lasted for a long time and can still be found today. Yeah, brave, brave stuff, Dorman, going, uh, making people rethink uh, someone who not necessarily would have been on the list. Which brings us to Charlie who, because she utterly adores Marilyn Monroe, is going to try and convince you all that the 35th president of the United States, JFK, was a tosser. Charlie, go for ah, it. Yeah, let's just get that out of the way quickly. I'm not fond of Kennedy or his family um, because of how they treated Marilyn Monroe. I'm also going to get this out of the way early. Yes, he didn't serve a full term and he didn't even bother to turn up at the inauguration of his successor. So... <laughs> We've got that out of the way. When John Fitzgerald Kennedy was sworn in as 35th president in January 1961, he brought both Hollywood glamour and Hollywood stars into the White House. His inaugural ball was a star-studded event to which, let's be honest, I would love to have been invited. It was organised by Frank Sinatra, and in attendance there were Tony Curtis, Ella Fitzgerald, Sidney Poitier, Gene Kelly, Nat King Cole... 
Sinatra did ask his fellow Rat Pack member, Sammy Davis Jr., not to attend because he worried that his recent interracial marriage to Swedish actress Mary Britt was going to be a little bit too much for the president's father, Joe Kennedy, to handle. Kennedy, as a privileged white man, would never have seen black people other than the ones that served him and his family at their club and in their home. Well-known performers were okay, so long as they were there to perform, which all of those people I've mentioned before did. Joe Kennedy, however, was smart enough to keep his distance, and he never visited the White House or allowed the world to believe that he was involved in any way. He wanted everyone to believe that his son was running the show, or indeed his son's. Because Kennedy appointed his own brother as Attorney General on the instructions of his father, the least qualified Attorney General in history, and just some grade A nepotism there. But history seems to have been blissfully distracted from all of this by the glamour of the Kennedys. It was their greatest trick and their ultimate failure. To use that wonderfully overused saying, the Cold War was heating up. Cuba was a big worry since it had gone communist and allied with the Soviet Union, effectively giving them a potential missile launch pad 90 miles from the coast of Florida. After the epic fail that was the Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961, in which America tried to covertly land a bunch of Cuban exiles to overthrow Castro, a hundred of them winding up dead and the remaining a thousand or so captured, JFK lost confidence in all of his military advisers and retreated into listening only to his family. In April 1961, this is only two or three months into the job. So Kennedy then resorted to his trick of glamouring the American people and in May 1961 announced that the US would put a man on the moon before the end of the decade, entering the space race against the Soviets and, you know, showing them who's boss that way. Now, it's all very well to look up to the stars and to go out to the east, um, but what was happening in America's backyard really needed attention. But Kennedy was so concerned that the fight for civil rights would distract from the war he wanted to fight against the Soviets and against gravity that he tried to ignore it for as long as possible. For example, the Freedom Riders were a group challenging segregation in the South by riding on buses that they weren't allowed on and in seats that they weren't allowed in. Kennedy couldn't risk upsetting the South at the time as they were Democrats. So he had Bobby, his brother, the Attorney General, call the Freedom Riders and tell them to, you know, calm down. Any progress made at all in the fight for civil rights at this time was purely incidental and should in no way be attributed to the Kennedys. JFK was all about the Soviets. So he flew off to Europe for a summit in Paris before moving on to the US Embassy in Vienna for a private two-superpower summit of his own organising. On the 4th of June 1961, JFK met with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and tried to charm him. Both men had enough missiles to destroy the entire world and Kennedy was certain if he could just get in a room with Khrushchev, he could glamour him into nuclear disarmament. Despite being specifically advised not to meet, Kennedy went ahead. Hey, who needs experts? Even organising a meeting through secret channels and a direct phone line which had helpfully been arranged for Bobby by a Russian spy. 
All Khrushchev wanted to discuss was the issue of Berlin and the problem he had of people fleeing from the east side of the city to the west side of the city, and he demanded that the US should surrender the Allied-controlled west side of Berlin. Kennedy achieved the sum total of nothing, coming home and describing his time in Vienna as a sober two days. And then two days after that, the Berlin Wall started to go up and Khrushchev escalated his nuclear program. Kennedy could not have negotiated peace with a leader like Khrushchev alone and without advice. It was ridiculous for him to have thought that he could. We're still living with the fallout, though mercifully not nuclear, from this massive failure. Perhaps it was completely hopeless. Maybe he could have negotiated better with expert advice. But the level of arrogance exhibited here is classic for someone like Kennedy, who was raised to be a winner and never even contemplated for a moment that there might be someone somewhere who would not fall for his charm and give him exactly what he asked for when he asked for it. Prick. Well done, Charlie. Uh... (laughs) Uh, Wendy, you'd have loved to have been at that inauguration as well. You love live music. I do. I, do. I would have enjoyed the inauguration. Um, you know, again, I grew up with Kennedy being sort of my hero, though not my parents' hero because they were Republicans. Um, it, stories about Kennedy have come out many times since then. Uh, I don't think that there is any way to overstate the control that Joe Kennedy had over everybody in his family. Mm-hmm. Um, we Americans don't use the word wanker particularly, <laughs> um, but although it's very fun, you also use other words like a C word that we would never say in America. <laughs> um, right, America? We don't say those words. Uh, have you been to Texas? Um, <laughs> I gave it back. I gave it back. Didn't you hear that part (laughs) where I gave Texas back? Um, His father was, was horrifying. um, And he, he built the horror in all of his sons um, and it came back and bit them in a variety of ways. Um, But I completely agree that we are, we are living with the, uh, the debris left behind from those mistakes. John, what do you make of JFK? Well, on one hand, he managed to compact the Vietnam War, the Bay of Pigs invasion, and the closest the world has come to a first strike nuclear situation, all into a surprisingly small number of months as president. On the other hand, he's kind of venerated. We've got him on the 50 cent coin still, if anybody uses coins anymore. And uh, in, in the 1998 election, uh, the Boston governor uh, or former governor of Massachusetts ran with a U.S. senator from Texas, and they tried to recreate the Boston-Austin accent, uh, vibe of the Kennedy-Johnson uh, campaign. In 2004, John F. Kerry ran against George W. Bush and loved to remind people that his initials were JFK. And of course, Oliver Stone made a movie that uh, we've discussed recently. So he's venerated in some ways. And and I don't know whether that's because he looked great in Wayfarers and was doing Marilyn Monroe or because of the sympathy from, you know, Sam Giancana having him, you know, murdered. But, uh, you know, my, I guess my question, Charlie, is how do you square his, his uh, legacy or his, the impression we have of him <clears throat> with what he actually did? I mean, or is there just a disconnect? 
I just think that the glamour of him is is so it's so prevalent. He was I mean he was gorgeous. He's got a beautiful wife, they had a young family and that was that was new. That hadn't happened for for generations. They hadn't had a young family in the White House. So everything about them was just it just looked so good and it was so exciting. And then of course you've got, yes, the fact that he was assassinated kind of erased a lot of the things that perhaps he didn't do right because that was so awful. And the, and we can see it. You can watch that now. That's what's incredible about, about that assassination is that it was caught on camera and it was so shocking and people remember where they were. I don't remember where I was, but people do it's and it kind of taints his legacy a little bit if you like Holmes what do you make of him yeah it's a, it's a tricky one I mean I think as others have hinted at I think you know would he be quite so revered if he hadn't been assassinated um you know I I'm I'm a big fan of the moon landing I know that there was you know there were he, issues he around it. at the time we talked about it on down the pub there's that Jill Scott Heron song put Whitey on the moon. It was done at the time to make the case that some of the money should have been diverted to those that, that needed it. But a bit of me also thinks that whereas sort of the nuclear thing that we talked about is possibly America at its worst, the moon landing thing is possibly America at its best. And it sounds a bit bullshitty and like it's from a film, but it, you know, the whole planet, it was, a, that was something for the whole planet to get behind. Um, oh. I'm completely, I'm, I'm with you, Holmes. I'm a believer in the, in the moon landing. And I think that also some of, um, Chris has just said, what? Because he's a sceptic. But I also think some of his speeches are incredible. But I'm also a grown-up and I know that they don't always write their own speeches. So he was a, he, he just looks so good. He sounds so good. The, the stuff about we go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it is hard. It's fantastic. It's great stuff. One more to go. And this is really unsurprising that Zach has gone for number 37, Richard Nixon. Yeah, almost a thief. Tried to steal an election. I mean, as you say, mine's the obvious one this week. Um, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there is one thing that Americans hold sacred before all things, except maybe, maybe God. And that one thing is democracy. The American Declaration of Independence, the document that was the basis of the union of the 13 British colonies, declares that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to these sacred rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So what we're really looking for is someone who did their best to, in effect, defecate on the democratic principles underpinning the United States. I give you the president who, up until a couple of months ago at least, had done more than anyone else to wipe their backside with the electoral process, Richard Nixon. Nixon's domestic and foreign policy records record is kind of okay. He managed to get the USA out of Vietnam, a significant achievement, and in the area of civil rights, he increased the funding for the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. But there were issues. He didn't move on desegregation until forced to by the courts. The withdrawal from Vietnam was preceded by the resumption of the bombing of North Vietnam, which had been suspended by Johnson, and the targeting of Viet Cong sanctuaries in Cambodia. 
which prompted the protests that led to the Kent State University massacre. All of this pales into insignificance, though, in the face of the obvious, the Watergate scandal. In the 1972 election, Nixon routed his Democratic opponent, Senator George McGovern, in a staggering landslide, 520 electoral college votes to 17. In June 1972, i.e. in the run-up to that election, five men were arrested for trying to break into the Democratic Party's headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington. It rapidly emerged that these men were part of an organisation with possibly the most appropriate acronym in history, the Committee to Re-elect the President, more commonly known as CREEP. Nixon promptly pooed himself because the five men in question had wiretapping equipment on them. Creep was effectively trying to spy on the opposition, and the money that those five men were receiving was linked to Nixon's re-election campaign. Nixon was in it to the hilt. Courtesy of an informer going under the cover name of Deep Throat. Now, I'm sure there's a tasteless joke to be made about President's Deep Throat in the Oval Office, but frankly, it escapes me. Anyway, courtesy of Deep Throat, who was later revealed to be a top-ranking FBI official involved in the subsequent investigation, Details of the scandal were repeatedly linked and splashed all over the American newspapers, making American democracy the laughingstock of the world. Nixon tried to use the CIA to physically block the FBI investigation, refusing scrutiny, and authorised secret hush money to be paid to shut the mouths of the five arrested creep members. Not the last president to pay somebody to shut their mouth, although, ironically, the latest president allegedly paid someone to shut their mouth, having previously paid her to open her mouth, but perhaps we shouldn't go into that. Anyway, it emerged that voice-activated tapes had recorded every conversation in the Oval Office. Nixon was ordered to release them. He initially refused, abusing his executive privilege in the process, offering to release summary transcripts. When this was rejected, he went on a coup, ordering the Attorney General to fire the special investigator of the affair. When the Attorney General resigned rather than do so, Nixon told the Attorney General's assistant to do it. When he refused, he was fired until the Solicitor General eventually agreed to do so. Calls for Nixon's impeachment followed, but Nixon still tried to cover up the truth, releasing seven of the nine requested tapes, one of which included a highly suspicious 18 and a half minute gap of total silence. In the end, the Supreme Court had to order him to comply by which point the White House Judiciary Committee had already recommended three articles of impeachment against him. When the tapes were released, it emerged that Nixon had been trying to use the CIA to block the FBI's investigation, and he resigned rather than face impeachment in August 1974, the only president ever to do so, ultimately being pardoned by his successor and former vice president, Gerald Ford. It was one of the worst scandals of the 20th century. Nixon had violated his oath of office. Rather than preserve, protect and defend the Constitution, he had abused his executive power, trying to rig his re-election by spying, by spying not on America's enemies, not upon individuals who represented dangerous domestic threats, but upon his simple political rivals. It is up there with trying to get another nation to dig up dirt on your political opponent. Nixon violated the principle of free and fair elections. The USA the great shining example of what democracy can achieve, had been made to look corrupt. Its election system had been tainted. Thank heavens that never happened again. Well done, Zach. 
<laughs> done very well and um, we were expecting Nixon to come along a great finale for us Wendy memories of Nixon absolutely memories of Nixon and memories of the endless Watergate hearings um, that completely dominated my first year of college um, we all got together after classes to to watch the hearings um, it was it was an unbelievable moment in history you you couldn't believe this was unfolding in front of your eyes um it, it, you know people didn't like nixon before that he wasn't a likable character um but you would not believe that he would be involved in something so unbelievably petty as that watergate thing um and yet there it was um he absolutely just brought this country down a despicable human being um when he died, Hunter S. Thompson, yes, I'm quoting Hunter S. Thompson, um, thought that Nixon's body should be crushed and flushed through the Los Angeles sewer system. And I thought that would have been a fitting end myself. Well, it's a good job we don't have shithousery like that anymore. And that no. Marjorie someone has just introduced, from Georgia, John, has just introduced articles of impeachment against Joe Biden today. Hurrah! Thank God we Hurrah. don't have shithousery like that anymore. John. Right. You know, uh, to Wendy's point, the Watergate uh, scandal, the hearings, the long, torturous affair that, that started with that third, so-called third-rate burglary uh, dominated our lives so much that I was, uh, at 1974, I was seven years old. And my parents had told me that when they found crayon markings on the wall and asked who did it, I blamed Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, years uh, and, and they then spend months on getting the the FBI to discredit you. <laughs> I, I think so. I, I, think so. Uh, I will give Nixon credit on a couple of things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, bringing the U.S. and USSR closer to some form of detente was helpful. Also, uh, the, his, one of his 1972 uh, campaign slogans was, uh, to me, takes the, the all-time honors as best campaign slogan ever. Uh, uh, Dick, Dick Nixon's uh, campaign was, uh, slogan was, they can't lick our dick. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I can promise you that is That's a slogan a throat, that Warren G. Hardy never wanted to use. Right. Um, <laughs> But uh, but Nixon, uh, I, I heard a talk by his uh, by John Dean, his uh, White House counsel, who went to uh, prison for his role in the affair, and he said that the real problem was that as soon as the story broke, the immediate reaction of the Nixon administration was to deny any knowledge, and that created a lie that they had to create more and more elaborate lies to try to to support. And uh, as a result of that, uh, you could say that we had a, a fracture in our uh, executive legislative relationships and a distrust in government that we still have to this day. Mm -hmm. Holmes. Yeah, I always think in, in a way that sort of John F. Kennedy looks like a sort of nice, but looks like a, how you would want a president to look. I always think Nixon looks like a wrong one, to be honest. He looks mm -hmm. like he was going to do that type of stuff. And I can't really add much more analysis to that because I was quite young when this was all kicking off or I, I wasn't even born really uh, no uh, you may have been still shit in your pants at that time when did that when did it happen was it 72? 1972 yes yeah, so I, I was born in that year so I, I, I 
a little, I don't have that much recollection of it. I mean, you know, I suppose the only thing in its favour, at least there were some moral standards back in those days where he felt compelled to resign, whereas, you know, I don't think that would necessarily happen these days, and not just in the US, in other countries, including this one around the world as well, so. Was your name still Jason then? <laughs> uh, yes, I became my proper name in, um, no, yeah, it would have been, I didn't become my proper name until... Um, January 73, which is going to confuse the fuck out of the listeners, but there we are. Yeah, I know. And let's not tell them anymore because it's funny. Right. Okay. Uh, that is it. That is all of our nominations for shithouse presidents. Uh, sorry, the worst president in the history of the United States is the official title of this podcast. Each, if you each pick a top three, then we've got time. We are mercifully under three hours for once. Uh, Zach isn't about to turn back into a pumpkin. Uh, right, okay, let's go around the room. And not only can the rest of you tell us what you're going to name your penis, if you have one, you can also tell us if you can't have your own crappy president, who has won your vote tonight. So let's start with Marcus and um, Tatiana. Um, I think I'd probably actually go I think my original choice was Andrew Jackson though I really liked Dorman's argument was top shithousery Um, there were some good arguments in there but Dorman's was very compelling Um, but yeah from from the outset Jackson and his like Native American indigenous people behaviour slavery but also the fact he kept up like we talked about a lot of them just being assholes yeah, that works, because obviously I've never had a female president. Yep, they're pretty behind. I was going to check that arsehole works, but yeah, it does. Um, yeah, they're, they're all pretty much assholes through a lot of their life, and in fact, they don't seem to have had many good ones um, from, their, from their system. But um, yeah, Jackson was just carried on through his presidency, as well as being before and after. He just, there's not a lot going for him, uh, and that's not just anti pro-British bias for War of 1812 shit. It, it genuinely looks like an absolute toss spot. So um, that's, that's like my history hack hat on, as not just my tweed hat that I had on earlier. Um, yeah, we're, go- we're going with arsehole Jackson, I think. I think I'd go with you because I'm even, I'm actually offended by the big block of cheese now because I'm like, what, you think that makes it okay that you're a racist? Yeah, and, and it's really annoyed me. I've only started watching West Wing this, well, end of last year, beginning of this year, and I was really enjoying it. Now I've suddenly got the block of cheese reference. I'm like, oh, or they're like, like fondue in the world's not going to do over like hundreds of millions of deaths, is it? So, yeah. It's not. No. Charlie, if you can't have that philandering, Marilyn hurting bastard, who would you have? <laughs> well, I would have. I, I was going to go for Dick Cheney, but, you know, I'm not allowed to go for alive people. Um, just tell everyone why you wanted to go for Dick Cheney. I, I just think that he, he was the vice president. But I think he did a lot of the heavy lifting in George W. Bush's uh, administration. And I'm just so pissed off that they allowed the press to be, the news reporting to be deregulated to an extent that you can have opinion presented as fact. And that's why we have things like Fox News. It is bad, bad, bad shit. Anywho, back to what we did have this evening. Yeah, we've had some bastards, haven't we? Um, but I'm going to go with Karen's. I'm going with James Buchanan because any leader of a country who leaves their country in such a state that it's going to go to war with itself is, is a massive prick. But on a hopeful note, a lot of these shit presidents did get followed by some quite good ones. So let's hope that America is the pendulum and we'll go the other way. Kit, are you eating a yellow pepper like it was an apple? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> is this because you've been forced to live on takeaway for the last three weeks and now you're just like sucking I'm, down vegetables? I have gained, I gained a third chin. I mean, look, look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. I need to lose weight. I'm eating a pepper. Excellent. If you can't have who you desperately wanted Harding, but if you couldn't have had him, who would you have gone for? Um, yeah, I, I was really surprised that Andrew Johnson didn't come up, um, who was the guy after Lincoln and was just a disaster. Um, but I, I have to admit the best argument, so there were some spectacular arguments tonight. Um, I thought Lockie's argument was really good. I thought uh, everyone running up to the Civil War, uh, Jackson um, being a dick. But I was actually really swayed by Dorman, uh, mainly because it's an area of interest of mine and it just made me look at it in a whole new way. So I'm going with Dorman. Truman. Aaron, who would you have gone for? I would have gone for Harding. Yeah. I mean, I think probably in the grand scheme of things, he really, you know, it, I would say, you know, if I couldn't choose Buchanan, since I present on Buchanan, but, you know, Harding and Buchanan on some level, it's like they're neck and neck for the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> I mean, just atrocious on every possible level that you can be atrocious on. James? Um... I'd have to go for Harding, although I think an honorary mention should go to the White House government website for the amount they've whitewashed all these presidents. It's just insane how much they've whitewashed them all. Oh, and I didn't ask. Kit, what would you name your penis? <laughs> Don't pretend you've got to think about it. Willy Wanker. <laughs> <laughs> James? Um... Uh... I mean, this is the biggest pause in anybody's <laughs> penis or something dissatisfying. Because I've never thought about it. Mac. I don't know. Want to Reliable, about, I guess. Reliable. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, who else have we got? Zach, what would you name your penis? Little Boney? Hot boy. Big Welly style. <laughs> Fucking pointless. Virgin jokes, man. <laughs> President. Uh, President, I was I was swamp I was swayed by quite a few, to be honest. Um, I, I liked Charlie's argument because I nearly went for JFK myself, but the the one that really surprised me and made me think was Dorman on Truman. So I'm going to go for Dorman. I know an Irishman making us think. Dorman, if you couldn't have had Truman, who are you sold on? I should do more serious arguments more often. That was fun. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's tricky. I think. Um, Kit's argument was extraordinarily compelling, but Jackson, from a personal note, has quite possibly the best military history quote ever attributed with him, which was at the Battle of New Orleans, he approached a battery of cannon and said, elevate them guns a little lower. So I'm going to have to go for him just based purely on that, if nothing else. (laughs) And what would you name your penis? Uh, Well, if I want to fuck Irish chicks, Cromwell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Beth. What's and all? Yeah. Um. Luckily, I don't have to come up with a name. Um. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's been really, it's been really cracking this this evening. But I think I'm going to have to go with. Obviously, Thomas Jefferson is a bastard, and no one else will beat him. Um. But if I had to pick one, I'd say probably Harding as well. Lockie, what would you name your penis? <laughs> um, it has a name already. It's called The Evidence. Because um... <laughs> oh, you've changed your name to El Presidente in the chat, and I was wondering if that was going to be the reference. 
Well, why is it called the evidence? Um, I think it came down to. Uh, no, do you know what? I'm not answering that. <laughs> it's going to be some hideous rugby story, isn't it? It's going to be some rugby tour story. Uh, if explaining that. <laughs> the correct answer is you're not allowed to comment in ongoing trials and investigations. <laughs> <laughs> Lockie, if you couldn't have your choice, who would you have? Um, well, I do think that the early shit cunts are truly epic shit cunts, um, uh, and Buchanan's among them. But I, I, I always struggle with Kennedy, actually, because he's one that I have to try and explain to kids on a regular basis, and trying to kind of explain because he, he he seems to be loved and and thought of as a good one and right now he got got this wrong and he got this wrong and he got this wrong and was made to look like a mug at this point and uh, this was almost world-wreckingly disastrous um i, I kind of feel like um kennedy has a special place in my heart as one that i dislike so yeah so let's go with him chris what would you name your penis um similarly it it it, it had it had a name in the past, which I'm not going to say. Um, uh, I don't know. I just, I do think it's something really fun. Uh, I'm probably going to, um, if anyone's seen, if anyone's ever seen Rick and Morty, I'm going to name mine after um, Jerry Smith, the dad, because he's boring and no one wants to be around him. So yeah, Jerry Smith. <laughs> self burn. Those are rare. <laughs> if you couldn't have your president. No regrets. <laughs> it, it's it, it's t- everyone's had some really good arguments it's been really interesting listening to more and you, you're right there's some real arseholes about there uh, i'm going to fall back on my own personal bias though as a, a star wars nerd and a geek that wasn't really accepted so i'm going to go for the two popular kids dormans for example everyone loves a hero tr- thinks truman is a hero i thought it was really well argued um but i'm probably going to sway towards charlie just because i don't like pretty boys who get all the attention from everybody else and actually do a shit job but everyone thinks they were great so I'm afraid it's gonna have to be kennedy but yeah everyone was really good it's been a really tough choice i love that not a hint of bitterness at all uh, and who have we got left to go to? Child- <laughs> no, just Clive. I'm really, I don't know if I should ask Clive because I don't want to get him into trouble with Mrs. Clive. It'll be something I'm just going to go in keeping with the theme of the evening. I'd name it after Nixon, Trippy Dicky. <laughs> if you couldn't have your president, who would you have? But Charlie mentioned vice presidents, and obviously Nixon's first vice president, who was so bad that he had to resign. Spiro Agnew is particularly memorable because Spiro Agnew is an anagram of grow a penis. <laughs> <laughs> a little known fact from American history there. But from this evening's contestants, I think Harding really did stand out as really quite spectacular, right in the Caligula groove. Okay, right. Let's go to our judges. Uh, let's go to Holmes first and find out the British view. Uh, I went in the end, and I didn't think I would go anywhere near this at the start of tonight, but I thought Dorman made such a compelling argument that I've gone for Truman. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Dorman. Uh, But have you convinced the Americans? Wendy? Um, I, I was still going with Andrew Jackson, um, I, I think that he fit into his time so beautifully um, in such an awful way and sort of paved the way for awfulness to come. Um, so I'm going to stick with him. Though, may I tell a funny vice president story? 
of course. So I made my daughter, who was probably five or six at the time, watch Ronald Reagan's funeral. And George W. Bush walked in with Cheney beside him. And I asked my daughter if she knew who those people were, and they didn't. And I said, remember this. That one is is a monkey puppet. It's not really a human. It calls itself president, but it's actually a monkey puppet. <laughs> and seated next to the monkey puppet is Dick Cheney. And Mick, Dick Cheney is the one who sticks his hand <laughs> up the monkey's ass and makes its lips move. I'm going to guess my daughter still remembers that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, I'm so not going to forget that. Uh, so, John, the, the American presidential scholar in the room. Uh, you know, there were a lot of great presentations. Uh, I was keeping up like, you know, who's the worst? Who's the who's oh. up there? And I, and I got to say the presentations on Truman, Harding and Millard Fillmore changed the way I, I viewed those three presidents that they, there was a lot out there I hadn't thought about or even known. But ultimately, if you're the chief executive of a country, the head of state, your number one job is to protect that state. And using that criteria, I think Buchanan, who my notes say fiddled while Rome burns, uh, was number one. Madison, who literally had the White House burning, was number two. And uh, Franklin Pierce, who kind of was uh, the prequel to Buchanan, was number three. The criteria being, if you let your country get invaded, you let it get destroyed or torn apart, you're a shit president. Indeed. Uh, This has been really interesting. I've learned loads. Um, It was much more fun than doing the best president ever. Also, just just, how can John put all his notes on one page when I'm on 14? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't listen any more than Alina does (laughs) (laughs) Alina who's renamed herself to King Bombastic Fantastic Uh, she's having a shaggy moment in the chat I wondered who'd rename themselves that. I was trying to think who was still here and <laughs> trying yeah. to figure it out. That yeah, would be Alina. Right, that okay. Another, Next that, week. Was the, that was the other name of Warren G. Harding's member. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, right, okay. Next week, I'm not quite sure what we're doing yet, but then the week after that, it's Valentine's Day, which is shit, but we're going to do the most romantic moment in history because it'll make oh. people like Beth and Charlie happy. Yeah. Uh, and the rest the week of after, course. Alex. There's two weeks in between then. Okay, whatever. Then you could, the rest of you, <laughs> you can have the most cynical, horrible topics you want before that to make up for it. So anything you want to think of that is suitably gruesome and disgusting to lead us up to that point, then have at it. Uh, join us tomorrow for a special with Boney, who is talking to award-winning director Sam Pilling all about faking the moon landings, which he did for a music video. So don't miss out on that. And then we'll be back next week with uh, more shithousery and general historical nonsense. 
Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.